Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. such a wonderful summer at the drive-in and and here we are back to the normal you know september is a is a transitionary time right the the summer season is leaving the fall is coming right around the corner the crisp air the Mm. leaves are falling and halloween is on the horizon after spending our summer in a car and and traveling in the past um we're we're back to normal surroundings kind of good to kind of get back to familiar territory and, and uh, a familiar setting. Even though we were covering movies over the summer, it was still a little different theme. And uh, yeah. we will, as we said last month, we're going to go back to the drive-in next summer. But for now, it's it's September. We're going to be doing something a little fun this month. The song we just listened to was called Rivers of Blood, Years of Darkness. It's by My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult from the 1990 album Confessions of a Knife, available on Apple Music. And I played that because if you listened carefully, that actually samples dialogue from one of our movies today, The Brotherhood of Satan. I was going to say that that's uplifting titles and it's just, you know, <laughs> something that's just going to make you full of joy and happiness. And that's really what these movies are. They're fun-filled, lighthearted comedies. We thought we'd do something a little different from the normal routine. Let's welcome everybody to our podcast and also to the video companion on YouTube. I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. And this is Richard Chamberlain from Kansas City Cinephile at KCCinephile.com and Monster Movie Kid at MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com. Tell us what we are talking about. We've hinted at it, but what's our theme this month? Well, we are going to have a satanic September. We're going to be spending uh, the month with Beelzebub <laughs> and various other names that he's had over over the centuries. We're taking a look at three uh, satanic films from the 1970s, a time period where anything from Satan and the occult was just kind of all the rage. These three movies all come from the early to mid-70s. Brotherhood of Satan from 1972, starring Struther Martin. We have The Devil's Reign from 1975, starring uh, really a cast of thousands in that one. You know, you would have seen any trailers in the 1980s. You would have thought that John Travolta was the main star of the movie. But uh, amongst other people, we've got Ernest Borgnine and William Shatner in that one. And uh, then Race with the Devil, also from 1975 featuring Peter Fonda, Warren Oates, and Hot Lips Houlihan, amongst others. Oh, and somebody from Dark Shadows, I think. Please. 
Yeah, I, who was it? Barnabas Collins? I don't know. Laura Parker yeah. from Dark Shadows is in that one. Uh, really, all three of these movies have pretty interesting casts, some familiar faces, some people that you wouldn't expect to see. A lot of fun. We're going to be taking a look at those movies and a few surprises along the way and ready to dive into to our satanic September. Get through our old business. Uh, we do have several new members this month, which is fantastic. I will read them off. And if we have, I, I've been bad about welcoming them on Facebook. You're really good about that. I personally want to verbally welcome everyone to our Facebook group, group page. Scott Pliskin, Adam Reeve, Chuck Powell, Brian Thomas, Brian Garner, and Jeffrey Williams. Welcome. Yes, welcome everyone. Welcome to the club. That's the Classic Horrors Club and a special shout out to Steve Turek. He is always one of the first people to welcome them as well. Thank you, Steve, for welcoming our, our newest members. Yeah. And the, the purpose of this really is just for conversation. I know we each post our different things on there to share with team members, the club members. We get conversations and club members post things. We did have a request for a Facebook page called Hammer Archives, and I love that page. However, we did not... Uh, accept their membership because we think we're telling you about it. We think it's a great page. We recommend that you go there. We just want to try to keep our Facebook group page to the conversation about us, the things we're doing and what the members have to say. Uh, but we do encourage you to go there and look at their posts there. They post quite a bit and it's great stuff. Hammer films. Absolutely. So no offense that we didn't add them. We might not have accepted the request, but we want to give a special shout out to them because they do have a cool page. Filling your Facebook feed with cool monster images is to me a million times better than hearing all the latest current event news and stuff. I don't go to Facebook for that. I go there for fun. And uh, that's what I like to see. That is one way that we collect feedback from our show, how we're doing. Uh, we accept emails at classichorse.club at gmail.com. We also have a phone line that uh, you can call and leave a, a message. We actually had one this week. Uh, our good friend, Chris Franklin from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Another great thing about this time of year is the House of Frankenstein podcast. Love it. That will be starting, I believe, this week when this airs. Uh, but Chris called in at our number 616-649-2582 easy to remember 616-649 club that, that was club for those of you whose ears started bleeding during that wow wow <laughs> hurtful so let's uh, listen to what chris had to say some great feedback about our summer at the drive-in and some great facts about one of the actresses that we mentioned in that episode hey jeff and rich it's chris franklin from the fire and water podcast network in the house of franklin stein I uh, just wanted to say I really enjoyed your uh, drive-in series as usual. It was fantastic. Loved it. It's so much fun. I actually didn't get to the drive-in any this summer, which is weird because we went every, uh, like, two or three times uh, a month last summer, it seems like. They were showing old movies then. Now they're showing new movies. So, yeah. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I really enjoyed the series. I will say, man, you guys were harsh on Theater of Blood, though. I was like, oh, man, come on. It's, it's, it's Vincent Price. Of course he's campy. You know, that's kind of his shtick, right? Except when it's not. But, no, I understand where you're coming from, but I, I really enjoy that movie. Of course, my wife hates Dr. Fives uh, famously, infamously, I guess. So 
I'm not even going to try to show our theater of blood uh, on that one. But <laughs> but uh, I will say, you guys were talking about Anitra Ford in the last episode and uh, Invasion of the Bee Girls. Uh, you guys need to check that out. That is a whole lot of, of, of fun 70s cheese. It's got William Smith, who unfortunately recently passed away. You know, he's that tough guy actor you know the minute you see him, like, oh, yeah, that guy. Uh, he's actually the hero in that. Uh, but Anitra Ford was also in the Kathy Lee Crosby Wonder Woman TV movie, and she's like her rival Amazon in that film. And you're watching that movie, and you're like, okay, statuesque brunettes, why in the crap isn't she Wonder Woman instead of Kathy Lee Crosby? But anyway, so I don't know about the whole sewn-in chest enhancements, but maybe that's why. But Kathy Lee Crosby's outfit was obviously not the real Wonder Woman outfit anyway. But anyway, guys, lots of fun. Really enjoyed it. I need to check out Kingdom of the Spiders again. Haven't seen it for years. Shatner, of course, i got to check that out. Uh, so, But uh, thanks again, guys. It's, uh, it was a lot of fun, and looking forward to what you got coming up next. Bye. Thank you very much, Chris. I really appreciate you calling in. I'm glad you enjoyed the, the summer at the drive-in. I I really appreciate you calling. I don't know how you have time, number one, to call, and number two, to listen to our three-hour episodes. You do so much, and I love all of your podcasts. You just had a great one with your, I can't remember what it's called, about the toys, and you you talked to the guys from Plaid Stallions in their new magazine Toy Ventures. That was a great episode. And then almost any of the comic book podcasts I listen to, you you pop up as a co-host or a guest. You're very prolific and very enjoyable. And that we're a little part of that makes me very happy. So thank you. Rich, I know you probably want to comment, but the other thing I want to say is, yeah, I guess we're even now, you know, your wife not liking Fibes and <laughs> me not really liking Theater of Blood. So uh don't uh, criticize us too hard because I that kind of balances in it, and I think that that we're even. <laughs> yeah, you know, we probably were a little harsh on on theater of blood, but you know, it, it's it is hard to talk negatively about a Vincent Price film. Sometimes when we 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 watch these movies and we've seen them for a few times, you begin to see some of the faults in them. I didn't think that we were way over the top with our with our comments but we had seen a lot of good movies over the course of the summer and that particular month it was just one of those things where i think you and i were both maybe like yeah there's there's some problems with theater but it's not his best film but then again you know we really love abominable dr fives and i didn't as much the first time i saw it so that's a case where viewings i got more and more in love with that film Theater of Blood is kind of the opposite. I liked it more the first time I saw it. And now each time I see it, I'm, I'm picking it apart a little bit. In any case, we really appreciate you calling in. You're so busy. I feel the same way as like Jeff was talking. Sometimes I like, I want to call in to shows and, and comments, but I always feel like I'm so far behind. You know, you get caught up on this podcast, but then I'm behind on this podcast. And comments I had was for an episode that aired three months ago or played three months ago. I don't comment as much on, on the shows I'm listening because I'm always listening to stuff behind the time and, and three or four months later. Thank you for taking the time. I'll say it again. You know, we'll, we'll be back next next year and and uh, doing it again. And I hope but we'll have more guests next year. We had a lot of fun with our guests this summer. And I think that's a trend we will continue. And I don't know, maybe we could have Chris as a guest. I was just going to say, if uh, he hasn't been to the drive-in, we need to make sure next year he goes to the drive-in. Absolutely. So I guess let's just make this official, Chris. We're inviting you to come 
find yourself a time machine and come with us to the drive-in in the summer of 2022. We don't know where we're headed. We don't know what we'll be seeing, but we want to see you at the drive-in next summer. Invitation, official. It's there. Have you seen Invasion of the Bee Girls? I have not. I haven't that's, that's one. I've, I think I have it in a Mill Creek 100 horror film set that has just about every other public domain movie on there. I'm pretty sure it's in that set. B-Girls has had some type of release since then. It's probably better. But sometimes I like the old poor prince and, and stuff. Sometimes it, I don't know, it adds a certain amount of character to it. You know, I have a new philosophy I want to share really quick on podcasts. So I, I was perpetually behind and I recently traveled and I thought, you know what? I could start right now and be current and work forward and not get behind. I That should be my approach rather than going back to this backlog that I'll never get caught up on. But you know what's going to happen. I've like created a divergent timeline. I'm now going to have two paths of podcasts that I'm going to be behind on. So I really don't know what to do. I was current with Steve and the Diecast movie podcast, but then he started putting them out again so often and I'm behind again. He's evil. I don't know. He's evil. I had the finish line in sight. You know, I was like, okay, I just, I've got a couple long episodes to make my way through. And yes. And then he decides to go off to the nostalgia convention and interview all these people. As we kind of joked with him, I was throwing up all the, the various little, you know, gifts that I could find. It was just like, I'm giving up. I, there's no way I can keep up. I had the same thought that you did though. Cause my thought is like, you know, there's so many episodes. It's like, okay, you know, I'm never going to be able to listen to all these episodes. There's certain podcasts I've had to take a, a pick and choose. It's like, okay, I really want to hear their thoughts on this movie, but I, I can I'm, I can probably skip this and this and this movie. So I've done that. I've kind of created this this pseudo list uh, with some of the podcasts that I listen to, and just here, here's stuff I really want to listen to. And then I just as the new episodes keep coming out, I, I say, look, I've got a backlog, and I just look at each movie, and it's like I'm having to do that for right now until I get totally caught up. I hate that. I niche out as time as I can, and just want to say thank you to the to the people who are listening to our show because we know that everyone's busy and everyone has jam-packed schedule and there's 10 billion podcasts out there to listen to so if you're taking the time to listen to our show thank you for putting us on on the list uh your top list of your podcast and and making it a priority we absolutely appreciate it because we know that we live in a time that's really cool there's a lot of podcasts but there's a lot of competition so if you're you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say absolutely appreciate it more than you could possibly know. And that goes the same for my blog and I'm sure for Jeff's yep. as well. You're taking the time to, to read our blogs. You know, we appreciate it more than, you know, virtual hug to everyone <laughs> out there. Oh man. I, that, I, I hate to say anything. That was fantastic. I, I, I do want to add the one thing, not to mention new podcasts that are popping up all the time. The horror host Penny Dreadful now has a dark shadows podcast and I've started listening to that. The problem is just it, these podcasts make me want to just do more and more things that I don't have time for. Like the, I want to see these movies they talk about. I want to, oh, good grief, buy the things that people are talking about. I, you know, I want to rewatch Dark Shadows. When am I going to do all of this stuff? You know. 
So let's set the stage. This is the early 70s. We're in the the midst of satanic panic. And in the movie world, that's largely because of the movie Rosemary's Baby, which came out in 1968. Very popular and inspiration, I believe, the three movies that we're talking about, some more than others, definitely evoke Rosemary's Baby and certainly the theme of of Satan, Satan. You know, it's interesting. We we told last time how we came up about the uh, topic for this month, and it was just oh, three movies about Satan. But it's uncanny how similar these three movies really are. Uh, you know, they're not just about Satan. They're all three in remote small town locations. Real quick, I want to say that uh, since I have seen these movies either so many times or recently, I actually, for this round, watched them with commentary. One of the commentaries I listened to actually created a subgenre called them redneck devil movies. Uh, Because (laughs) they do, they take place in small towns with uh, off the beaten track. They're isolated, desperate, interesting characters. These three all have that in common. I kind of felt like, especially with with a couple of these films, that we were watching like Deliverance meets the Devil. You know, almost like it was kind of like we were watching this weird Abbott and Costello esque, you know, version. Because <laughs> like I, there was especially with Race with the Devil, I, I was getting a, a definite. Well, like, that's like Smoking the Bandit versus. Yeah, and I know you know when we get to that, but there was there was times in I, all three of these movies, I'm like. Does nobody watch a damn horror movie? What are you? There was times I was screaming at the screen. I was like, what are you doing? Please don't do this. You, this is a dark, uh, you know, yeah, it's all lost. So yeah, there's so many similarities between these three films. Unintentional, but it's just the way it worked out is I think is going to be pretty awesome. Yeah, and not just, you know, Satan, but like Satan ceremonies of Satan worship are... Yes pivotal plot points in all three. So they're very similar. They're also similar thematically because not only did Rosemary's Baby come out in 68, but also Night of the Living Dead. Now, these don't have zombies. However, movies were starting to take this tone with not only just downer endings, but these themes of like not being able to trust those in authority. And all of these movies have people that you're unsure of and you don't trust and ultimately end up prevailing this thought of you know good guys can't win if you're looking for for happy endings here's your spoiler folks no not going to happen with any of these films there's there's definitely a theme of like yeah good guys don't win in a uh three and oh battle i mean satan wins out (laughs) pretty much uh, in all three films and it starts right out of the gate with the first movie we've got on, on the slate here which is brotherhood of satan um and it sets the tone and the hits keep on coming after that and those downer endings kind of became expected in movies like this in the 70s one of the commentaries points out and it's an interesting line because you want to have characters that you care for and you want to be sad at the end when something bad happens at the same time you don't want to care for them so much that the ending like just devastates you and leaves you emotionally destroyed. So it's all, to me, it's just all fascinating. This little formula that, that was concocted in this era post Rosemary's baby post night of the living dead. There are things in heaven and on earth beyond the comprehension of man. Call them what you will. The occult, witchcraft, Behold the 
Bible worship. from getting in around Hillsborough for the last three days. 26 people slaughtered in a little over 72 hours. Six families wiped out. All those kids missing. A story of contemporary family witchcraft in California. Witches. Black artists and celebrants of the Black Mass. Each missing child was in a specific age group from six to nine. sacrifice, the unholy ritual. It's all here, as a coven of witches holds a California town in the grip of terror. drives into a small town to report an accident two miles south, then discovers they're trapped there. No one except them has been able to get in and no one can get out. Before long, the father is screaming, my God, they're all mad, and their daughter becomes a potential victim of the Brotherhood of Satan. Okay, through the power of the internet, I found out that I was actually wrong. Brotherhood of Satan was released officially in 1971 uh, in the United States. IMDb had March 3rd, 1972 as the release date. And I just, that's normally when they have that, that's the U.S. release date. But actually that was the Mexican release date, Mexico. 1971, I stand corrected. Premiered August 6th, 1971 in New York. It was made by a studio called Four Star Excelsior and LQ slash JAF distributed by Columbia Pictures, was written by William Welch, story by Sean McGregor, directed by Bernard McEviti, Eviti, McEviti, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> this just fascinates me. Produced by L.Q. Jones, a very familiar actor, and Alvy Moore, none other oh. than from Green Acres, Hank Kimball. Was Four Star Productions, was that Alvy Moore's production company? Well, I don't it? know because LQ slash JAF would be LQ Jones, I would think. Yeah. Uh, and they were they were definitely a pair. And they, four movies they produced. One sounds like a horror movie. It's not. It's a Western, The Devil's Bedroom in 1964. But The Witchmaker from 1969 
which is referenced many, many times in the commentary to this movie. Yeah. And then yeah. A Boy and His Dog in 1975, which is a certified cult classic. Yeah. Four Star is actually the company that I know they did at least one television show. They did The Big Valley. When that logo popped up, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's Four Star. Because that was always the logo at the end of The Big Valley. I Big, big Valley fan back in my youth. Yeah. So, I mean, and I guess if they did a Western in 64, so they've been around for a while. Interesting to know what their connection is with that, if anything. Mr. Hank Kimball goes to, to Satanwood, you know, it's like kind of weird. I, but, but, you know, he yeah. didn't just play Hank Kimball on Green Acres. He also played Fritz Kimball. <laughs> That's a deep dive. Well, but, yeah, I, I can't honestly say I remember that, but I thought that was funny. In the Actually, I, you mentioned it and I kind of do because, yes, I, I've seen all the Green Acres episodes back in the day. You know, it is interesting, though. I thought his appearance in this movie is so weird, but... I started looking at his IMDb. Well, he did do War of the Worlds. He was in that. But then he was, you know, obviously, if he's producing these films, he's also in The Witchmaker and A Boy and His Dog. He has a bit of sci-fi horror cred. Oddly enough, I wouldn't have thought it. And then L.K. Jones supposedly had an interest in the occult. And yeah, is some reason that, at least for Witchmaker and Brotherhood of Satan, that they might have chosen those projects to, to work on. Have you seen The Witchmaker? I have, yeah. I think I, I may even still have it, actually. Uh, on they talk about it a lot in the commentary, and I really would like to see it. I remember liking it. I can't tell you anything about it, but I remember I liked it. Uh, I've seen A Boy and His Dog you know, several a long times. Time for me. Interesting cast on this one. And L.Q. Jones, a character actor, really, in a way. I mean, 165 credits, but a definitely a, a very specific character. I thought he was gone. I thought we had lost him years ago. I found out that he's still alive at the age mm. of 94. I haven't heard of him doing anything for quite a while, but uh, he's still with us. Now we have lost, you know, several of the other key actors in this, in this movie. LQ Jones is probably one of the two highlights of this movie for me. LQ Jones plays the sheriff. I don't think he's ever given a name. The sheriff of this town that, that has been, as being plagued essentially by this cult uh, of as eventually is revealed witches that have uh, a nefarious plan afoot. I guess the top build star of the movie would be Struther Martin, who we see as Doc Duncan. And we'll talk about Struther Martin in a little bit. He, he's an absolutely wonderfully quirky character actor. Alvy Moore uh, plays the character of Toby, who is kind of like, I don't, is he's not a deputy officially, is he? He's, I think he is. Is he? Okay. He definitely, if he's not, he serves in that role. But then you have a few unfamiliar uh, people as far as like immediate name recognition. Charles Bateman plays Ben and Anna Capri plays Nikki. The, the other married, right? Yeah. Yes. That I believe is his second wife. Second wife, because they, because he has a, uh, a daughter from his first marriage. KT, which I thought was a weird kind of name because it's yeah. actually the initials KT, yeah. played by this is another deep dive, yeah. but Jerry Reichel has only eight acting credits. So she does Brotherhood of Satan. She does I Dismember Mama in 72. But then her n- biggest notoriety was being the fake Jan in the Brady Bunch variety hour. If you know anything about the Brady Bunch, yeah, you know that's that's an infamous and notorious and kind of funny. 
And then we've got uh, the only other, like, as far as the big cast, there's a uh, Charles Robinson plays the priest. Again, I don't think he was ever given a name. Nope. So actually they did call him a name in the movie. I don't remember what it was, okay. but uh, he's yeah. In the credits, he's not, he's only listed as priest. Listed, listed as priest. A few unknowns. So Charles Bateman's not, not somebody I recognized, but I looked at his credits and he's like, he did lots of TV time tunnel. He, he was actually in a movie we covered what at the start of this year, he was in the Poseidon adventure. He was the first officer uncredited. So he's only in a very brief scene. He was in the $6 million man, which we will be, I'll mention that quite a few times in this week's episode, various, you know, a lot of these stars have a lot of TV creds and these, all three of these movies, he's still alive. He's still with us at age 91. Anna Capri plays Nikki. Now she didn't, she did lots of TV. She did enter the dragon. So she had this brief period of, of time where she was kind of trying to make her, her name in, in Hollywood. She had a very tragic end. Unfortunately, she uh, died in 2010 after her car got hit by a five ton truck. She spent weeks in a coma and she died at the age of 66. Hmm. Um, now Charles Robinson did lots of TV. He was in Six Million Dollar Man as well. We lost him in, in 2006 at the age of 74. And then um, Alvy Morris as Toby, Mr. Kimball. Um, we lost him quite a long time ago. We lost him in 97, but he was 75. So, um, you know, LQ Jones, as we said, is still with us. We'll talk more about Strother Martin, but an interesting, interesting cast because you had some TV actors and then you had some some pretty well-known Hollywood actors. Strother Martin, at this point, was really almost at his peak as a Hollywood star because he had just done a little film called Cool Hand Luke in 67, of course, which has the infamous line, what we have here is a failure to communicate. <laughs> that line is, is, is often played a lot. It's in it you know, Guns N' Roses uh, song, I think was it Civil War. So everyone knows that that iconic line. And whenever you see Strother Martin, he's just always seems like he's he's kind of sweaty, kind of dirty. He's just this, this guy that you just imagine hangs out at this gas station, you know, out in the middle of nowhere. You always just kind of get the creeps around this guy. He plays the, the smarmy guy that you never quite trust. As we see him in this movie... Initially, he plays Doc Duncan, who is the trustworthy guy, right? He, he's the doc. He's, he's trying to take care of things. He's trying to keep everyone level set, but not everything as is as it seems. And you know what other movie he was in? One of my favorites. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. yes. That movie, too, is one of those movies. It's like. I don't know. I just feel like I, I need to take a shower because it seems like you're always hot and sweaty and you're dealing. He's and he's kind of this kind of this slimy doctor who's doing bad things. So that was just kind of a a shtick. But did you know that I didn't know this actually? He was a championship swimmer. Yes, um, I learned that. Yes, yeah, so he he almost went to the Olympics. He was a swimming instructor to silent film star Marion Davies and. Charlie Chaplin's kids in 1948. Um, so we have this whole, I mean, I, I, I look at Strother Martin, I don't think championship swimmer, but this was prior to him becoming a Hollywood star. You know, he went on to have 
176 credits, which in itself is incredibly, incredibly uh, long, but he died at a very young age. And I, I, you know, it's like, well, gosh, Strother Martin's been gone for a long time. He died in 1980 uh, of a heart attack at the age of 61. So you can only imagine as prolific as he was in films, he, you know, his, his film credits probably, you know, would have been uh, well into the 200s, I think, before he would have retired. Strother Martin is, is a quirky character. And when I went into this movie, I thought, you know, you watch the trailer, you know, Doc Duncan is, is not necessarily what he's going to be known for in this movie. And so I thought, okay. Strother Martin is playing the the leader of this this cult and he's going to be over the top and he's going to be so great in it. And so I guess this is where we start to go down the path is that you love this movie and I've got issues with this movie. And I hate to say that one of the issues I have is with Strother Martin's performance. Really? Um, Tell me about that, because that's one of the things I like. I, huh. yeah, I, I went in this movie with high hopes and, and I, I know that this is a kind of a cult favorite. A lot of people enjoy this movie. I thought there were elements of this movie that was very poorly made. There was some very odd editing choices. It seemed kind of rather choppy at times. All three of these movies have dialogue that's going to be cheesy. You're going to have moments where things are going to go over the top. Ernest Borgnine's role in The Devil's Reign, obviously right there. I felt, though, like when Strother Martin would, would, would go into his thing where he was praying to Satan, I, it, it just didn't work for me. He's, he's sitting there and he's just like, oh, dear, sweet, heavenly Satan, you know, it just some of the lines to me, I felt like they were poorly written. And, you know, when he's dealing with some of the people that, you know, I, I guess this is a, this is, these are witches. So I guess it's a, it's a, it's a coven or a coven. I've heard both terms. I think it's a coven, mm-hmm. um, you know, that they're kind of doubting, right? I mean, there's a few cases where there's some doubters and, you know, he's just kind of chastising them. The dialogue just doesn't work for me when he's sitting there. It's like, you know, how dare you act this way and this sweet heavenly Satan. And, and, you know, you're not, I don't know. I just, I, I expected cheesy dialogue, but I'm sitting there thinking, uh, it just, it, it, it just seemed forced almost at times. It didn't seem to flow naturally with the cheesy lines that we get, like with Ernest Borgnine and Devil's Reign work for me better because it seemed like, yeah, they're absolutely cheesy and crazy, but there, it seemed more natural. Whereas here, just the way they're speaking and some of the dialogue just didn't seem, seem to flow for me. It just, it, it seemed to me like you're reading a really complicated script and terms and it, and it doesn't seem like that would be the way that they, that they would be talking naturally. Maybe this is a situation where we need to go back and rewatch this and maybe I'll appreciate it more. But upon first viewing it, it, I was disappointed with it because I just, some of the dialogue just didn't work for me. Some of the, the edits, I love the premise. Well, let's, I love the idea. Can I of, respond please to the yeah, yeah. part first and then you can go into your other criticisms. <laughs> no. uh, so I, his performance that he becomes 
towards the end, he un, uh, becomes more unhinged, more crazy, more maniacal. But at mm. the beginning, yeah. it is so different. He is he's like fearful. And, you know, when you mentioned he's praying and he's looking up, it's subdued. It's just so different. Usually these cult leaders are just from the start batshit crazy. And here it's more like, it's almost like he doesn't know what he's gotten himself into. He's afraid. That's what I got out of it. And I love that because that was different. And yeah, he eventually gets to where everyone goes. And then it's just so, I hope I can say this and we don't have to do a parental warning, but again, just it's so batshit crazy that the dialogue to me just goes with it. I, it, it didn't bother me at all. It was just one other crazy thing in a movie full of crazy things. So I get what you're saying, but I'm just saying that didn't bother me. I like the idea actually of, of there was a fear that you could see, you know, at the beginning and then, yeah, he just continues to go down the the crazy lane and things get really unhinged, especially in that final scene. It's like, okay, we're just, we're, we're down full blown crazy lane here, but I don't know. I, I think, that I, 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 you know, I didn't have a problem necessarily with that. I think it was when he, the way he would would speak, and the way he would speak to the the other witches, and then the way that yeah. the witches would would kind of respond to him. There was a scene with the older lady, right, at the party, and she was being called out for for not basically doing her part. And I wasn't convinced. That, I mean, she was terrified. I mean, I, I there was kind of like, okay, I kind of get that but then I kind of feel like she's just saying these lines and I wasn't being convinced enough, I guess, that, that she was really afraid that there was, I don't know. It was, I don't know if it was just the acting level, uh, something just, it just didn't seem natural for me. And I, and I struggled with, with. So I do have to admit, I'm looking at my notes of that scene and I, I actually wrote that the doctor speaks some eloquent gibberish. <laughs> So I guess I sort of picked up on what you're saying that, you yeah, know, I guess it just stood out saying. more. It stood out more for me. It, I don't think it probably bothered you as much, but I, whenever he would do that, none of this is really making sense the way that some of the things that he's saying and the way he's saying it. And I'm like, maybe it, it may, I've never been in a cult. So maybe <laughs> that makes sense. But <clears throat> having seen other movies and things, I guess, even if if he was fearful, there was a, a a presentation and the dialogue and the flow was just always off for me in those yeah. scenes. And the scenes were where you know we were seeing the the townsfolk. There there was a genuine level of fear that, and you know, some of it was the acting levels were just kind of all across the board. Like I thought Charles Bateman did a good job as Ben. Anna Capri as Nikki, eh, you know her acting skills weren't quite up to, to the same level. I don't think you make choices and things that they do. So let's, let's talk about that. Right. Choices, all three of these movies, there are those moments where people will make a choice and you're like, what are you doing? So you're driving and you see an accident. And so I guess like in, in this movie, it's like, okay, you know, something obviously happened. You go to the town and I probably would do the same, right? In that particular time, you can't call 911. So you go to the nearby town to report the thing. For me, when I when you get that reaction from the sheriff, like just the dismissal, I've seen enough movies to know that something's not right here. 
I'm going to get in my car and I'm going to go and, and I'm going to leave all of this behind and I'm, I'm going to ignore the rest of this. Now, as we know at this point, no matter what happened, they weren't going to get out of town, but they stay and then the townspeople go crazy. And of course, then, you know, they try to leave and then the, the thing happens with the car. But so what do they do? They go back to the town. I would walk. I don't care if I'd be walking in the storm. I wouldn't be going back to that town because it's obvious the townspeople are are bonkers. They're, I mean, you're, you, they, they were lucky to get out of there. I don't care that I wrecked my car. I'm going forward in the other direction, knowing that I may have to walk a long time, but going back to that town is not going to end well. Unless you hope that you're going to be able to reach a phone or something somewhere I think one thing we that we learned certainly from this movie and, and Race with the Devil is that vacation planning 101, don't take the side roads. You stay on the interstate, stay where you know that, that you, you know, you're not going to be out in the boondocks. Nothing ends well in the boondocks. And no matter what the movie is, you know, the people who like, let's take this road here and have, have and go out in the middle of nowhere. It'll be okay. Clearly. You know, this was a time period where people weren't watching television and movies enough to know that that was a bad thing. So that was one of the things I was like, just walk, walk the other direction. Don't go back to town. Richard, we wouldn't have much of a movie if they did that. Well, this is true. So I guess we should be thankful for their stupidity and walking back to the town. Some of those scenes, though, were with Nikki. I mean, she she was kind of becoming unhinged again. eh, Her acting wasn't quite up to par and it kind of threw me out of the moment. A little bit. LQ Jones was was a highlight. And I actually thought that that Alvin Moore was good. I love the scene where you know he he tries to calm her down with a comic book, which was Adventures into the Unknown, issue number 142. That was kind of cool. Yeah, you cool. gotta love a guy that takes a stuffed monkey from a crime scene and gives it to a little <laughs> girl for a birthday present. <laughs> yes. Oh, here, happy birthday. Yeah. There's probably blood crazy. spots on it or something. Uh, I know. I was like, oh, come on. That's 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 wrong. I loved how like when she was leaving, she kind of like puts it on the chair. I probably wouldn't have wouldn't have taken the first place. Yeah, you know, the townspeople obviously were going through something horrific. And so some of the scenes worked, some of the scenes didn't. And a lot of it was just the acting levels were just kind of all across the board because some of the the supporting characters, you know, like the the one father who gets mad because the the wife let the kids out of the house, you know, and he picks up the kids and things don't end well well for them at all. Here's the thing. So for a lot of this movie, we don't know what the heck is going on. I'm not sure at the end of it, I know what the heck was going (laughs) on. But these characters know more than we do, you know, and we're not seeing the, the reasons. We're not seeing their motivations. So, you know, obviously that father knows there's something going on with the kids and he doesn't want his kids out there to be exposed to, you know, but we don't know that. So to us, that seems odd. Like, why? And the whole movie is like that. You could argue that it's purposeful, that it's supposed to be ambiguous like that, or you could argue that it's bad filmmaking. I took that it's, well, whether it's purposeful or not, it is ambiguous. And I like that. I really like that you don't know what's going on and you have to figure it out. And then maybe you don't figure it out. I I don't know. I I just, I really liked that. I didn't really know what was going on until the final scene. And even then I was kind of like, <laughs> I had, I had to go online to see, I was like, what did I just see? Cause I'm not exactly sure what happened. And so then when I read, do we want to do spoiler on this and then talk about the endings of these movies? 
I think we have to with these movies. I think we, yeah. As you watch this movie, I honestly think, you know, I guess maybe it's good if you don't know what's going on at first because it adds to the suspense. But at some point, maybe a dialogue or two of explanation as to what the plan was might have helped a little bit because then it would have added to the what's exactly going on here. And, and you wouldn't get to that final scene. Essentially, you've got a, a coven of witches and they're all older and but they're not like they're not old, old, you know, I mean, they're some of them are. I all guess. except that one young woman that the young one woman threw me. Yeah. I mean, I guess I think that true. old couple walked in that she's moving slow. I took. Well, I guess that's place. true. That's true. So they're they're older. And the whole idea is they they're capturing all these kids in the movie. Right. So the kids in town are disappearing. They needed one more. So <laughs> that's where, you know, Katie, she eventually ends up missing. And it's this weird, they're like not physically kidnapping these kids. They're like, basically, it's Satan casting a spell or the witches are casting a spell. Kind of hard to tell. I don't know that we actually ever see Satan in this movie. It's more so Strether Martin plays the dual role. He's Doc Martin, but he's also the leader of the cult. He's the leader of the witches. And they're casting a spell to lure the kids to the home and what they're seeing is is not really reality. I mean, it's it's the house is is a bit run down, but in reality, well, you know, but not in reality. It, it looks to them like it's just you know, there's this weird party scene where the kids with are a acting. black birthday cake, black birthday. Cake. I love it. <laughs> yeah, black birth, black frosting with with well, you know, true red, red cake. cake. Yes, Which I, you know, maybe a red velvet and that candle they... on top was I want one of those on my next birthday cake. Yeah, so and so they're, I don't know, hypnotizing the kids or, or you know, thinking that something else is happening. And, and but they're going to use the kids. Essentially, they want to transfer their souls from the old body into the new body. Bodies are going to be used as vessels for for the for the coven of witches. Southern Martin's got this plan and it, and it ends up the final sequence is this chase scene essentially. Cause now that the, the parents have finally figured out something's afoot, well, they know something was wrong, but now they're kind of getting the clue that the doc's in on it. And it's a matter of trying to race to, to save the kids. And if this was a 1950s movie, they would have got there in time and would have beat the bad people and the kids would have been saved. But this is 1971. We can't have a happy ending. no, clearly again with no explanation kind of left up to you to figure out exactly what's going on we see that the ceremony was complete the room that we thought was had all this stuff apparently was just a rundown room and the party thing has got all sorts of weird kind of dust on it and stuff but there's cake so i don't know that's kind of weird and all the kids are just kind of staring at them you know there's there's no oh thank you mom and dad you're here it's there looking at them is like, well, yeah, these kids are all now little witches, which leads to the questions like, what are they going to do with all these kids? Do the kids still have, do they have the power? But now they're just kind of like village of the damned where they, they, they've got power over these adults. Interesting. Nothing's really given to you. I, I didn't really understand completely until I went online to find an explanation. I, I'm okay with movies that are open-ended a little bit, but when there's just absolutely no explanation to me that's that that hurts the movie a little bit because you got to give something you got to give at least at least a little something to explain what's going on and i think the movie would have worked a little better in the end 
if they would have given us, if you want to wait till the final five minutes to give out what's really happening, fine. But there should have been some moment of better explanation than Strother Martin going batshit crazy in the end and, and doing this weird ceremony and, and, you know, he's going nuts and, and as entertaining as that may be the whole time, I'm like, what is going on here? I don't, you know, what's the end game with all this? The screenplay was by William Welch. He had done lots of TV work and certainly had some horror or sci-fi cred to him. Bernard McEvity or McEvity also had done lots of TV work, a couple of episodes of Planet of the Apes. He had a lot of TV people in front of the camera, TV people behind the camera, and they were given this full-blown movie. And it, it almost seems like at times that, that to me, it seemed like maybe they needed somebody a little more experienced with feature films to kind of guide them a little bit and say, we need to do this or we need to do this. It just seemed like there was some loose ends that needed to be tied up and there was some better editing that needed to happen. And I feel like what makes this movie is Struther Martin and to a lesser degree, LQ Jones. I think if you wouldn't have had them in the movie, that the movie probably would have gotten lost in the shuffle along the way. But because it's Struther Martin, because it's some familiar faces, I think it helps the movie still be talked about today. But for me, it's problematic. Let me ask you this. If you, now that you know, or think you know what happened, if you watched it again, do you think knowing that you might like it better because you could sort of put the pieces together? My gut reaction is no. (laughs) Okay. So there's the scenes where like you see this tank destroying a a car and it turns out that it's a toy tank. Yeah. And it's like, it's a matter of, of mind over matter kind of stuff happening, right? The witches are controlling things. And, you know, what you see is not always what's really happening, but something physically had to have crushed the car. So is it the power of the witches or was it the little toy truck became a real tank and then went back to being a toy? Kind of like the the jousting knight was actually a toy. Did it really become a jousting knight or was it really more of a mind thing that caused things to happen. And that's well, I think of- you're thinking about it too literally. I don't know that that matters. At least it doesn't matter to me. Like, and the, a side note, the first time I watched this, I didn't even put two and two together. And it's like the first thing they point out in the commentary is that toys come to life. I mean, that is the method of murder in the movie. And I guess I don't think of that little horse thing as a toy because it was more like a little statue or something. So I didn't no. think of that. But if you think about it, that's right. That's what happened. They talk about how with the budget, that was a great way to represent what was happening was cutting back and forth between the toy and the real. And to me, I didn't really care literally, did the toy grow and expand and do it? Or was it power? It was just the the idea of it. And I have to say that doll, that is droopy. My sister had that doll. It was a doll that you pulled the string and it talked. I'm not just saying, oh, that's a doll my sister had. I am intimately familiar with this doll. We used to, as kids, quote that doll. She made a comment that was, I go seep now, night, night. To this day, I say that. Like if I'm with my brother and sister and I'm going to bed, I say, I go seep now, night, night. Droopy said that, and that was the doll of that movie. So when I first Uh, saw that, that doll, I was taking pictures. I was sending to my brother and sister. It's 
So that you have a connection, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that whenever you, somebody has a connection to a movie, I mean, then that that's that totally understandable. And supposedly that doll they said on the commentary is in another movie, uh, which I've seen, and I don't even remember a doll in that uh, creature with the atomic brain, which was like ten years earlier. I yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. Remember. I mean, I've seen that, but I've, yeah, I've got it, but I I don't remember, don't remember Droopy in that. Yeah. Oh man, that's just creepy i mean and i know it's like silly this doll shaking but then at the same time the guy's dying and then later a tear comes down the doll here's something i might admit to there have been plenty of movies that have been vague and don't really explain and we like them but that's because the entire movie creates this weird atmosphere there's lots of weird dreamlike sequences and you don't know what's going on there are those sequences in this but it really is more straightforward than that as far as the specific events that are having. They're linear. You, wow. you know what they're doing. Interspersed with some scenes, but had the whole thing been treated dreamlike and weird, maybe we you could have accepted better the fact that it's so ambiguous and you don't know what's happened. Maybe. Man, I can't sway you anyway, can I? <laughs> not, not, no, not this viewing. This will be a movie that because of Struther Martin, because I like him so much, I, I will rewatch this movie at some point. It's not something I'm being pulled to. Like when with Suspiria, when I watched it the first time, I was not pulled to watch it a second time. And it was many years later when I watched it the second time, I was very much pulled to see it a third time. So with Brotherhood of Satan, I'm, I'm not there yet. It's like the first viewing, it's like, I can go a while before I see it, but it's still on my radar. It's just on like the, the outer reaches of my radar. And at some point I'll have an opportunity to revisit it and I'll, I'll rewatch it and say, maybe there's something here that I missed the first time. And I don't, you know, as with anything, I may different mindset, different years down the road, whatever. I may look at it very differently and, and see something I missed the first time. But with this particular viewing, I just, maybe my expectations were too high. I well, I probably answer. set him high because I saw it for the first time and I loved it. I, I think it's your fault entirely. Yeah, I it is, I'm sure. But uh, <laughs> no, I think know, I, 70s I, is my sweet spot, you know. I, well, I, and, and I think that was with with this particular, again, Strother Martin. I saw the trailer. I was like, oh, this is going to be good. Strother Martin, he's going to be going crazy. And, then, and his performance didn't work for me. Hmm. And then it disappointed me. Maybe again, with a second viewing, I'll look at it with a different set of eyes. But of the three films, this is my least favorite. You and I are generally in sync, but we have those occasions where oh, yeah. we're out. And this is one of those occasions where I think we're out of sync. I didn't see what you saw in this movie, but that's not to say that it's not there. It's just yeah. for me, it didn't work. It's not so bad that I'm going to say, I'll never watch this movie again. Yeah. No, I will. But it'll be a while, I think, before I, I revisit it. One now, thing I want to say about all three movies, watching the commentaries, I found myself paying more attention to the visuals of the movies and all three of these have some striking imagery some beautiful scenery in in some of them some great oh. shots and i yeah, think I what agree. i'm going to do richard instead of talking about those now i'm going to save that for the the video so that i can maybe put those scenes in for people oh, to yeah. see what i'm talking about that way too we provide some different content other okay. than just what we're doing yeah that here. makes sense that sounds so good so those of you listening check that out and check and out. you'll see what i'm talking about here there was one really cool little thing I, I, I read, um, and this, I think, was straight off IMDb. Magic of the movies, right? And, and cool little promotional thing. I'm just going to read there what it came directly from the site. When the film was originally released, 
theater goers were given a packet of Satan's soul seeds when they purchased <laughs> their tickets. Each paper envelope illustrated with the movie's logo contained two seeds, which were, according to the instructions, supposed to provide protection from the black magic of the Brotherhood of Satan. It is not known for certain if anything hellish or otherwise ever sprouted from the seeds. <laughs> Crazy promotion, and I'd love to see if there are any of those packets still exist out there. I think that's absolutely something missing from the movies today. It's like, I, I, at most, we get maybe with some movies, there's a poster in the theater, right? A little, little cool little poster. I think there needs to be more little gimmicks like that. I think if you know that something like that's going to be there, Matt will get you out in the first opening weekend or something to see if you can get your copy or something. Yeah, and that we had a resurgence of that during the video era, and I'm sure you know from working. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's little little fun stuff that would come. I had, man, I had two plastic tubs of those. I think I finally sold. I kept the good ones that I liked, but fun stuff. Well, fun stuff at the time, you know, it's like, and some of it maybe adds throw away afterwards, but it's kind of just cool promotional stuff. And I think for whatever expense is involved in it, it's just, it's kind of cool promotion. And I think more studios probably need to do that. Do you need promotion for a Marvel movie? No. Do you need promotion for maybe something like the movie Malignant that's opening in September uh, or will have opened by the time we where this airs? Yeah, I mean, probably wouldn't hurt to do maybe something to, to those lesser known movies. Hey, you know what? Here's here's this or here's that I think would be would be kind of cool. So. And now's the time to do it, trying to get people back in theaters. Exactly. Hey, let's get on that, Richard. Let's hook up yeah. with uh, some producers and give them some ideas. And I think so. I think it, I think they need to think outside of the box to use an overused term. <laughs> the only other little tidbit I had was that this was apparently offered on a double feature with THX eleven thirty eight. Hmm. Bizarre double feature, to say the least. George Lucas's early sci fi film. I didn't realize they were still doing double features in the early seventies. So that had to be the dying days of double features. You saw this movie on the new Blu-ray, the Arrow Blu-ray, that's just been released for available on Amazon for $28. I watched it via Amazon Prime Rental. So obviously the print I saw would not have been the Arrow video print. How was the print? You saw it both, right? Because you saw it. Yes, the first time I saw it. Uh, I think it was comparable. It's comparable. The Blu-ray was beautiful. I should mention the commentary. And I don't know the other gentleman's name, but... Aero Video must be originally a British company because they are. Yeah, okay. they are. The commentary, Kim Newman, who you've probably heard and usually, yes. I mean, love him. Usually he's a wacko, though. He's fairly restrained here. Uh, and then his British partner, whoever he's that He's not was. a wacko. He's eccentric. Okay. So, well, that's what I mean. I, I mean it lovingly. Yeah, um, yeah. He's quirky. He is absolutely quirky, but entertaining. He's a movie nerd like us, but he's in his own category but he's also, a, he's got a wealth of knowledge. The commentaries can be different things. Some you can really learn about the movie. Some, if it's especially with the stars, you kind of go off on that tangent. You talk about their career, not so much about the movie. This was a, a good mix. Um, it did include a lot about the films of the era and the satanic panic and how that developed in the, the whole, well, actually, I took quite a bit from it for our introduction when we were talking about all the movies. So it's interesting for that. Sometimes I, I will say, don't listen to the commentary. If I've listened to it, this is a, it's average. You could take it or leave it. Do you have anything else to say about brotherhood of Satan? No, I just, I really, really, it was an unexpected hit for me. I, I really like it. And we will see certainly not the bottom of my list. 
Will it be at the top? I don't know. There have been films about earthquakes, airplane disasters, and blazing infernos. But there has never been anything like The Devil's Reign. The Devil's Reign. The 300 year search for the power to damn mankind is over. And the towering terror of the devil on earth is now unleashed. held captive in an eternity of hell. Seize him! Possessed by the devil. You, my son, have defiled all that is holy. Mother, my God, my God! They become his worshippers and his demons. Rain, starring Academy Award winner Ernest Borgnine, Eddie Albert, William Shatner, Keenan Wynn, and Ida Lupino as Mrs. Preston, and with the special participation of Anton LaVey, high priest of the Church of Satan. The Devil's Reign, conceived by the producer of A Man Called Horse. Created by the masters of magic of Planet of the Apes. Together, they bring you a melting hell on Earth. And absolutely the most incredible, unforgettable ending of any motion picture ever. Heaven help us all when the devils reign. In a small, desolate town, a challenge of faith is waged between good and evil. At stake are the souls that have been collected in a bottle and the human husks of the bodies that slowly, very slowly, melt during the Devil's Reign. Richard, before we get into Devil's Reign, I do want to mention the other person on the commentary of Brotherhood of Satan. His name is Sean Hogan. Devil's Reign released in July of 1975 produced by Sandy Howard Productions, released by Bryanston Distributing, written by Gabe Esso and James Ashton and Gerald Hopman, and directed by Robert Fuest. So Devil's Reign is, is not my first viewing, as we said, it's a movie I have seen many, many times. My first experience with The Devil's Reign came in 1975 when the trailers would be played on television. I was a young, impressionable lad of eight years old. And unlike Jeff, who, who went to The Exorcist and all these horror movies when he was young, I wasn't exposed to this stuff. 
And so when the trailer for The Devil's Reign would pop up on TV, I would get terrified. My mom and dad would have to like run to the TV to change the channel. And I remember vividly, I was like, Devil's Reign, Devil's Reign. <laughs> and then they'd have to run. Clearly, I, my, I was not a young monster kid. I was a late bloomer. And I blame my parents for sheltering me from that kind of stuff. I didn't see Devil's Reign again until, or really proper. I don't think I saw that on the creature feature with Cremation Mortem, but I might have. So we'll just say some point in the 80s, I saw The Devil's Reign. And obvious, you know, my, my gateway to this movie was William Shatner. Because, you know, big Trek nerd that I am, this is Captain Kirk. Oh, know? it is? I didn't yes. realize that. I didn't realize that. Yes. Same yes. with last time, Kingdom of the Spiders. Man, I am dense. I know. I <laughs> That was my, you know, pull to go see the movie. Actually, though, I mean, Shatner is not the lead. Although, depending on what point you may have seen this movie, he's marketed as having probably a bigger role in it than ultimately he had. Clearly, Ernest Borgnine's the lead. I'm not sure that Shatner is in the movie that much more than Tom Skerritt, who plays his brother. Maybe Tom Skerritt's in it a little bit more, but the way the movie splits up, it's almost like there's, you know, one brother gets the first half, the other brother gets maybe the last uh, hours so of the movie. I don't know. It kind of depends. Star-studded cast, really. You've got Ernest Borgnine as Jonathan Corbus. You've got Eddie Albert as Dr. Sam Richards. Again, Eddie Albert's not someone you would expect to find in these kind of movies. And really, he didn't do much in this genre. He did an episode of The Outer Limits. He did an episode of The Twilight Zone in the 80s, and that's about it. Ida Lupino, her star had fallen. And so, as with many people, they end up doing horror movies, right? Because that's where the offers came in. And sometimes it pays off and sometimes, you know, it doesn't. And Ida Lupino, she plays Mrs. Preston in this film. Clearly, one would say, yeah, she's slumming a little bit from what she had been prior. Batman fame, she was Dr. Cassandra on Batman. Not one of my personal favorite villains on Batman, but nonetheless, she was in that. You've got Keenan Wynn, who plays Sheriff Owens. Huge character actor, 282 credits, Kolchak the Night Stalker, Laser Blast. I remember him as Digger Barnes on Dallas. He was the second Digger Barnes on that. Tom Skerritt, a young Tom Skerritt, plays William Shatner, plays Mark Preston, and Tom Skerritt plays his brother Tom. This was before Tom Skerritt became known uh, for a little film called Alien a few years later. He was also in the original Top Gun. I was surprised that he wasn't in Top Gun Maverick. He's still alive, still acting, still doing well. I don't recall his character getting killed off in Top Gun. So I was surprised they didn't throw him in for a cameo. Supposedly, at least. He's not listed unless it's going to be a surprise. Joan Prather plays Tom's wife, Julie. I remember her from Eight is Enough back in the day. Joan Prather, Tom Skerritt, and William Shatner had a bit of a reunion on this movie because they had all previously done Big Bad Mama. You had uh, a young John Travolta in his theatrical debut playing the character of Danny, who upon original release, he was just really almost a you know, blink and you miss him. There was a deleted scene with the character of Julie that was added back in to kind of beef up his role. And of course, in the 80s and even in the 70s, he was heavily promoted as being a big star in the movie where you can barely see him, honestly. And an interesting casting, we have Anton LaVey, 
as the high priest and Diane LaVey as uh, Priscilla Corbis. Anton LaVey, of course, technical advisor in the film, the founder of the Church of Satan, wrote the Satanic Bible, was featured in the documentary Satanus the Devil Mass, and basically just a horn dog who got into it all for the fame and fortune and to get women. But at the time, he was the Church of Satan, and it was their way of like, oh my gosh, we have Anton LaVey as our technical advisor, and he's in the movie. And his wife, Diane, uh, who was the high priestess of the Church of Satan, uh, interestingly enough, she left Anton LaVey at 84 and then went back to her birth name of Diane Hegarty. She kind of bailed on that whole satanic thing, but for a period of time, she was right in the mix of it. Very interesting cast to headline The Devil's Reign. And we've got an interesting set of writers and directors that we'll dive into. I've loved this movie. It's cheesy. It's bad. It's not a great film. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense. Yes, you'll be screaming at the that this because I didn't. Why are you living in the desert? And why are you know? The first thing that immediately comes to my mind in this movie again, people just don't watch TV enough or watch movies enough. If you've got to go to the middle of the desert and you've got to pack water and you've got to pack gasoline in the car because this town is that much in the middle of nowhere and you know that you're combating someone evil you better make sure that your faith is in top-notch order because you're putting yourself at a huge disadvantage and William Shatner he may have had it all going on as Captain Kirk but as Mark Preston not the sharpest tool in the shed as we see early on in the movie deciding to challenge Jonathan Corbus in a battle of faith, the good versus evil, not a really smart move. What was your first experience? Before we talk more about the movie, what was your experience with The Devil's Reign? I saw it first run at the trail drive-in in Enid, Oklahoma. Ooh. That was the good drive-in that showed major motion pictures, not the Enid drive-in that showed the Hammer films and the, the racy film. Richard, I was bored with it then. I'm bored with it now. This is a slow-moving movie. The opening credits, I timed them four minutes long. The final scene, it's spectacular of everyone melting in the devil's rain, goes on and on. It does. On. It does. But, like you, I love it. The commentary on this disc was with the director, Robert Fuest. The thing is, you know, it's a current interview. I don't know how old he is. He was pretty sharp but you don't always remember yeah this. yeah so you know the it was okay but this disc has some fantastic extra features it has an interview with tom scarrett there is an archival interview with william shatner you might enjoy this was the time the star trek the motion picture was like is it going to happen is it not going to happen is it oh, gonna wow happen? That, and he talks one. about that I, it's not really about in, in in fact it's funny because he like they ask him, what are you doing next? Well, I've got a movie coming out called The Devil's Reign. And it has an interview with the current high priest and priestess of the Church of Satan. <laughs> and you think, well, what do they know about this? They know a lot. And I don't know how. I don't know if Anton LaVey kept records or if there's like a history in the church about their involvement with this movie. But they knew a lot about it. Maybe they've talked to Anton LaVey and they've heard stories. This woman knew John Travolta was very insecure on the set because this was his first movie and he felt like this is my first movie. 
is going to ruin me and my career hasn't even started. He was very insecure about his future. And, you know, Saturday Night Fever was right around the corner, or I guess Welcome Back Cotter probably was right around the corner. This is terrible. Tell me if I should edit this out. But the appearance of the current priest of (laughs) Church of Satan is just tickles me. Now, Anton LaVey was dark. He looked scary. He did. did. I mean, he he looked the part. Yeah. Well, he looked the part, unless you've seen like in documentaries where he wears the little the little hood with the horns on it. He's wearing the the Kmart Halloween costume is like this guy is physically very different. He's large. He has gray hair. He has a crazy beard. He he looks satanic. (laughs) <laughs> and every and the, the woman does most of the talking. And every time she brings up a t- point, he's watching her. He'll look at the camera and he'll like kind of smile like, ooh, isn't that juicy? I mean, it's it's hard to <laughs> it's hard to explain and it's silly, but I just I got a kick out of it. So anyway, all I'm saying is some good information during the commentary from the actual director of the movie. But the bonus features on this disc are fantastic. I need to upgrade my my yeah, copy. I my, my copy's not bad. Severin does good work. They have good special features on their stuff. So that's that's a definite. I need to see it. And you know, I think I saw The Devil's Reign a, a few years ago because I, I did this segment for uh the B movie cast on it when Vince Rotolo was still alive. He and I had started doing William Shatner films and we had done Incubus, we had done uh Kingdom of the Spiders, and then, and well, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, then we did Devil's Reign. I think that's why I watched Devil's Reign with Carla. She did not see the other two films. She had seen Devil's Reign, and she said once was enough for her. The revisit was all on me. Devil's Reign is a fun film. It's got a lot of problems. It's not perfect, but it's something like, I'd love to have that Blu-ray just for the extras that you're telling me. It seems to sound like it's a lot of fun. Talking about Anton LaVey a little bit. I watched a few years ago a movie called Satanus, the Devil's Mass. It's a 1970 documentary on Anton LaVey. I covered it for Dread Media, episode 666, which is an awesome satanic episode. Anton LaVey was, he was a charlatan. He really was. He, he, he was, I truly believe that there are some satanic cults out there that are obviously very, very evil. I think there's the other side that there's a lot of cults out there that really, they're in it for the sex. That's a theme that, and I'll talk a little bit here about another movie that I I watched, that naked women and sex seems to be a recurring theme with this. And Anton LaVey was kind of just a sideshow traveling salesman kind of thing. And and, and the way his presentation, he looked evil, looked the part, but really he was in it for the fame and the fortune and the women. And that's really at the end of the day. The Church of Satan has, you know, when Anton LaVey died, there was this big internal struggle between family members and non-family members who was going to take on the Church of Satan and who was going to win out and and control it. And I believe the LaVey family was out of the picture. And so the people you saw are probably the new leaders who are, they were like followers, but they were basically claiming the rights to run the Church of Satan going forward. When this was made, the Church of Satan was running out of that little house in San Francisco, as well known. You know, it's all this is where all the parties and all the ceremonies happen. And that house has since gotten destroyed. And I don't know where their base is now. There's a lot of 
other satanic related cults out there. And, and some of them will very specifically say, we're not the church of Satan, you know, we're, we're, we do our own thing. And at the end of the day, I feel like there's just a lot of groups out there. They're just, it's a marketing thing. And it's just, they're wanting to sell t-shirts and they're wanting to sell mugs. On one hand, it's like, I question how really evil they may be. On the other hand, it's like, yeah, you're, you're using Satan for marketing is probably not a smart move because I mean, even if you may not believe in it, the fact is, is that you're, you're promoting whatever you're selling. You're making money off of something that is legitimately related to evil. And it's probably not a lot of good mojo coming back in you on that. You know, LeVay, whatever his technical advisory, you know, that he did on this movie is, is questionable. I think it was more so they could just use him as a marketing ploy. In an interesting way, Anton LeVay, who loved the fame and fortune, was actually, I think, kind of used to help promote this movie. I don't really think that he did a whole lot for the movie. Well, actually, his minions or whoever today said he did have quite a bit of participation in the consultation on the actual ceremonies. Well, that's true. The language, some of the script. There is a language, Inukian or something like that, that he actually taught them. And you can hear, I don't know if it was Ernest Borgnine or who in the ceremony, speaking this language. So, I mean, he did have some legit, you know, whether the contributions were legit or not, he, he did have some legitimate contribution to it. I stand corrected. That's true. Because I know that the, this ceremony part, I think is where he was like, well, you should do it this way, do it that way. And that was his contribution. I don't think he really contributed much else to the film. Yeah. He was given this little on-screen part just for shits and giggles because it was Anton LaVey playing a high priest and obviously brought his wife along for the ride. But here's the thing though, Anton LaVey basically pulled most of that stuff out of his rear when he was like, this is the ceremony stuff. He's giving them, well, this is what you do. Well, that's what Anton LaVey created. The legitimacy of it is right. where it's like, yeah, okay. Yeah, it comes from Anton LaVey, but Anton LaVey was the one that just kind of created a lot of this stuff. I did find interesting though that, Ernest Borgnine, and this is where I'm like, you know, sometimes you read stuff on IMDb and you're like, okay, that sounds cool, but eh, is it really accurate? Supposedly, Ernest Borgnine said that there were mysterious happenings on the set. Mm -hmm. He vowed that he would never do a movie like this again. Yeah, but he did. He did Deadly Blessing in 81, which had to do with the succubus. He also supposedly said in 2010 at a convention that the movie was financed by the mob and that he never got paid. That sounds like a bit of an embellishment too. I suppose there could be some fact in it, but considering that nobody else has said that, I don't know if, if in, in the later years of Ernest Borgnine was, you know, maybe forgetting some details or whatever. I don't know what his health was like towards the end. I've heard that actually more than once, but whether or not it's all coming from the same source and whether or not it was, he really did say that at the convention or not. I don't know. seems kind of weird because no one else seems to have validated that. So I don't know if that's actually true or not. Well, you know what else is kind of weird? It's interesting that there's this like mystery surrounding the production of the movie, because also the rumor was in Cinefantastique magazine wrote that the director, Robert Quest, had a nervous breakdown after the movie. He calls that out on the commentary and says, no, that never happened. But I've heard that other places as well. And I wonder, you know, if I'd had a nervous breakdown, I might not have wanted to admit it either. Yeah, you probably wouldn't. Um, yeah. I forget 
with him what specifically happened, but I'm under the impression he got onto the production late. And I also feel like he was just doing a job and then it was kind of taken out of his hands. Yeah. He didn't really have any job in the editing because he kept saying this is too long. In this commentary, constantly he's saying this scene goes on too long, you know. And he supposedly took the job, read the script, didn't really know what was happening. He was confused by the script and he'd call it out and the writers would say, no, 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 it's perfectly clear. What but they happened. wanted, I think they built it around that scene, right? They had this like, ooh, cool melting people and this stuff and let's build the rest around it. The movie is at what, 90 minutes? And there's not enough there for 90 minutes. So you end up having to stretch certain things out and add things that don't necessarily make sense and that are really fully explained to help stretch out that 90 minute running time. Because ultimately everything that's in the movie is to get to that final scene, which is very cool, but it goes on for too long. It's like it needed to be edited a little bit. But then again, if, if you know everything is surrounding that and you're putting all this money and effort into that, then you should probably try to get your money's worth out of it. Yeah, there wasn't quite enough there for a 90 minute movie. There was an anthology movie. The story could have been compacted a little bit and would have worked maybe like a 30 minute segment or something in an anthology movie. Well, maybe. yes and no. I mean, it's not really... A story. I mean, people melting. That's well. Yeah, that's, that's not that's, a story. That's, that's, that's true. true. Yeah, he thought twenty minutes could have been cut out. I don't know about that. I just looked up the Incredible Melting Man because that's similar effect, and I was mm. wondering if that came first, and maybe they thought, well, we'll have Incredible Melting Men, you know. But no, Melting Man came a couple of years later. I do wonder something that has changed between the time of our first movie in this movie is that the exorcist came out yeah. in 1973. Now I don't think that has any obvious effect on this or on race with the devil. However, I wonder if the gore aspect, maybe if they thought, Oh, we can take Satan and we can make it gory. Yeah, I don't know if probably. that had any impact or not. Early seventies, there was obviously gory movies out there, but they were fringe Exorcist made it almost you could do a bit more mainstream now, right? That just kind of did open the door for things and it changed horror. Night of the Living Dead kind of like opened the door and the Exorcist just, you know, kicked down the doors entirely. It's like the Night of the Living Dead changed the trajectory, but the Exorcist really propelled things in a way that the ball got rolling and then they just, they kicked the ball down the lane and, and, to take it to the next level. Had The Exorcist not happened, I'm not sure The Devil's Reign would have happened just yet because there's really nothing like The Devil's Reign prior to The Exorcist. It is. I mean, it's excessive, but yeah, it's pretty gory in a sense. I mean, it's it's pretty, I mean, you got melting people. It's an awesome effect and it's the moaning and stuff and all that, you know, and when you see the people trapped in the globe, which makes no sense, but it looks cool. Well, the opening credits, let's talk about that. They were cool because they used the paintings from artist Hieronymus Bosch, The Garden of Earthly Delights. He was a Dutch Netherlandish painter who lived 1450 to 1516. He did mostly religious paintings, but they were a very unique style, which kind of, you know, with the right music and the white, right stuff can kind of look creepy. And they pull that off, I think, in the opening credits. Long opening credits, but I think they pull it off. But the moaning and stuff is probably one of the creepier parts of the movie. 
And when I was doing some research about Hieronymus Bosch, there's an interesting connection to Kansas City. He did a painting called The Temptation of St. Anthony. It's a small panel, and it's actually in the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art here in Kansas City. This was long attributed to like his workshop, but like which included other uh, artists. But in 2016, after a lot of forensic study by the Bosch Research and Conservation Project, they actually determined that he actually did that. So it was not one of his artists that was in his community, but actually him specifically did that. Kind of cool that that's here in Kansas City. We have an amazing art museum here in Kansas City. And it's been a while since I've gone pre-pandemic. I want to go specifically to see that now that I know that it's there. Mm. I thought his artwork was amazing. Yeah, I mentioned that the opening was too long, but it was, those pictures were really good. That It was a good opening credits. It was just long. The movie was filmed in Mexico, a location called Durango, and this was also where A Man Called Horse was filmed. And they talk a lot of the commentary about how the same filmmakers had gotten to know the town and they liked having him there. And so, oh, they're coming back to make another movie tight shooting schedule using a Mexican crew that didn't speak English. I don't know if any of this contributes to the end result. It has to it in some capacity. There were challenges. There were pressures for the director. The fact that he may have had a, a breakdown makes sense. What a great location that is. Refresh me. I think they actually built the church. Yes. I think so. Yeah. 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 So it doesn't really belong, but They show the town and it's this like little dusty ghost town. And then the church is like in the middle of nowhere. But that is really cool. It's a great visual. And it also like what it represents. I wouldn't go there, (laughs) you know, long drive to get out there. When you know that you're basically going to be pitted in a battle of good versus evil. And so what does William Shatner do in this, right? He takes a gun with him. He's got the pendant that he wears that's going to protect him. But ultimately, he has the gun, and that ultimately is what seals his fate, because he essentially challenges Corvus to a a battle of faith. And, and, well, yeah, Ernest Borgnine is Corvus so great in that. I was like, oh, yes, I'll take you on. He knows exactly that his faith was stronger. And then ultimately, when they're going to the church and things are getting tough, what does Shatner do? Well, he whips out the gun. And that's not going to do anything. He shoots people and little goo comes out of them. Ernest Borgnine looks at him and says, so is that what you have faith in? And at that point, you're like, ah, Shatner's screwed because he's just exposed that he doesn't have faith in God. His faith was in the gun. And therefore, his faith is less than Jonathan Corbis's. And, and it doesn't end well. And through some trickery, he takes the, the pendant off. And at that point, there's, there's no hope, no hope for Shatner which leads to an eventual ceremony, right? Where they're basically burning out the eyes and do this thing. And this is where Don Post Studios did a live cast of William Shatner for the film so that they could use during the melting scene so that he had the the mask on. And of course, they would market that mask as a Captain Kirk mask. And this was, of course what led to that mask being used in a little film called Halloween in 1978. There was a scene in this movie where Shatner is holding Tom Skerritt, like pushed him against the wall or something, and he cocks his head. That reminded me exactly of Michael Myers. So, Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so if Devil's Reign gave us nothing else, <laughs> it gave us 
Michael Myers in a roundabout kind of way. Yeah. So huh, um, I didn't know that. There was also a few names and I didn't know this either that were actually potentially attached to this movie, which would have changed this movie entirely. Instead of Ernest Borgnine as Jonathan Corbis, apparently Vincent Price was considered for the role. Hmm. That would change entirely. I don't see Vincent Price doing the Ram's head makeup. Vincent would, you know what? He wouldn't have needed to. Vincent could be evil. Witchfinder General, I think he would have channeled that. And that honestly would have legitimized the movie tremendously, I think. Might not have been Vincent Price's best film, but it would have changed things. Another person, if this casting would have all kind of lined up, the character of Dr. Sam Richards, played by Eddie Albert, not a big role, but he's there. Peter Cushing was considered oh, wow. for the role as Dr. Sam. So can you imagine Peter Cushing and Vincent Price? Where's and Christopher then, Lee? Who's he gonna play? Well, the other well, there is a Christopher that was considered. Supposedly, Christopher Plummer was offered the role of Mark Preston. Hmm. That I have a big question mark. To yeah, me, I don't see that. that I don't see that having worked. So if they, by some chance, did offer it, there's no way Christopher Plummer would have done it. And I don't think that he should have, because it was like, I think he was above that at that point. Shatner, Star Trek was over. Motion picture hadn't started yet. 70s is this dark time for Shatner, as he was just kind of taking whatever role he could get. Devil's Reign is a cult favorite, mostly because of Shatner and Borgnine. One person I didn't mention in the cast, and, I, and, and he's an odd character, Woodrow Chambliss playing the character of John. He was like the old man, I guess, servant of the family or something at the beginning of the movie. Oh, uh-huh. He's the one that gets hung upside down. He was in lots of TV. He was in Gargoyles. He was in an episode of The Six Million Dollar Man. I've always thought he was weird. Okay, he's pretty old to her servant. Are they just kind of keeping him around? First off, when Shatner leaves the house and he's on his way to the car or the truck and then all that stuff happens like in a matter of like five seconds. It's like, that doesn't make any sense as to how that all quickly. So his mom gets kidnapped, John gets hung upside down and the house is or Torah shambles. I suppose you're dealing with Satan and anything's possible, but why did Jonathan just not take the book? Why did he have to have the Prestons care for it? If he knew where they were, don't you think that you would take the time to like look under the boards as, as powerful and as smart as he is? Well, we, we looked on the shelves and it wasn't there. <laughs> I don't know. Pull back the curtain, pull back the rug. It's right there. John was always this weird character. He's his mind is a shambles and they like, they had no faces. There is a lot of nonsensical stuff in this, in this movie is like, why, you know, you have the flashback sequence and you say, okay, so there was this curse or whatever on the Preston family and they were entrusted to keep the book, right? The book of names. Somebody said online, he had all the souls in, in, in the container. Couldn't he have just done the head count? Of who he <laughs> well, yeah, but it's the whole thing. The, the signing of the, the name of the book was, you know, that's, that's kind of the old trope, right? It's like, you have to have that without that nullifies the deal. I have some tidbits commenting on some of the things that you've said. This movie, you know, not only capitalizing on Satanic Panic, but ESP, the fact that Eddie Albert is experimenting, you know, that's how we're introduced to him. Investigating ESP, I thought was a nice 70s touch. 
Shatner actually, in his contract, had a weekend off to go to a Star Trek convention. One of the first big ones. Yeah, 75 would have been the time period where they, they were just starting to do that. I'm not sure if it was the very first one, but it was one of the first big ones. The bottle or the, the pot that you mentioned, that was a Sony portable TV. They had done, I believe, this was filmed in Mexico. I believe they said in Hollywood, they actually filmed the, the people for Inside It. And they built the pot up around it. And that was fantastic, but it had to have power. So they kept talking about this. And I looked and I couldn't see, but they acted like when they moved it, you know, they had to have somebody come and replug it back in. Because <laughs> I don't know. Yes, they didn't have extension cords. I thought that was kind of clever. And then, you know, that makeup for Ernest Borgnine, I think is terrific. I, I agree. I like that. I, I do like it more than the melting effect. You know, so, the melting effect is good, but it's just too much. You can have too much of a good thing and it just got tedious. If they had done that more sparingly, I think it would have been more impactful. Back on Ernest Borgnine, that, and I don't know if you noticed... I didn't notice it at first, but when in the later scenes, he was kind of like, you know, moving his nose. That's what they did in Planet of the Apes. And I had read that they had to do that either, I don't know, to keep the makeup pliable or so that it didn't harden or something. You know, they had to twitch their noses like that. And I noticed him doing that. uh, And I I don't know. Do you know anything about the makeup people on this? Well, yeah, I do. So Ellis Berman Jr., was on the makeup effects team for Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Oh. <clears throat> so that's where that probably was something that uh, the trick of the trade that they learned. He also worked quite a few credits here. Uh, the Man Who Fell to Earth, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, The Goonies, Back to the Future, Parts 2 and 3, and a lot of Star Trek cred. He did work on Star Trek V, uh, The Final Frontiers, Star Treks 8, 9, and 10, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise. Yeah, some legit cred there. And in that Planet of the Apes, certainly his makeup there is, is, is one of the highlights of the movie. It's really good. Yeah, it's the Ram set. It's kind of cheesy, I suppose, but it was good. And I think it worked in the confines of, of this movie. Everything else about the movie is cheesy. So it, it's not just a mask. It's legitimate, great special effects makeup work. And I think that it, it stands out you know, as, as a highlight of the film, certainly. And then the last thing I want to say is probably, I mean, other than the cast, the biggest creative person to come out of this was the editor, Michael Kahn. He became Steven Spielberg's editor of choice and was editor on many, many, many of Spielberg's movies uh, subsequent to this. So everyone's got to get their start somewhere. And sometimes that start leads them to some good places. The writers looked at the names, Gerald Hopman, John, uh, James Ashton. They're only writing credit, not a lot going on there. Gabe Esso was a name that was like, I know that name. What's that name? And so I did some search. Well, he only did seven credits. He did an episode of Deep Space Nine called Sanctuary. It's another Star Trek reference. So did he write books? Is there something? And yes, he wrote a book in 1968 called Tarzan of the Movies. It's one of those great movie books that used to come out in the 60s and 70s before the days of the internet. If you wanted to have a list of movies and know about movies, there was always like the films of, you know, the films of Boris Karloff, the films of the Tarzan of the Movies was a book that I was, you know, and still am, but it's been years since I've seen a good Tarzan movie, but I love the old Tarzan films. I used to watch them every, every Sunday on Tarzan theater. 
I would go to the library and and I checked out that book and I and I, I would read it because it had all the information on all the Tarzans and Tarzans I couldn't see on TV. I now have that book in my collection. I bought it several years ago. You know, it's kind of weird. He wrote a few, a few handful of film books, about I think six, seven, eight books, and then you know, a handful of TV credits. That's where I knew Gabe Esso from. It was from Tarzan of the movies. Hmm. I was driving me nuts because that name is just not a, a familiar name. It's not a, a common name, I should say. A lot going on in this movie. The movie itself, yeah, may not be a four-star classic, but there's a lot of cool people involved in it. For as nonsensical as the movie is, I do enjoy it. Like you said, you know, it's like there, there's absolutely some boring sequences. There's stuff that doesn't make sense. But keeping with the theme, right, of never have a happy ending in, in, in any of our satanic September movies, you think good old Ernest Borgnine's been defeated and you have the classic scene, right, where you've got Tom and Julie Preston, you know, are the last survivors. And of course, it's time to hug and embrace. And it makes no sense, but it made for a cool scene. We see Julie change into Ernest, Bor- Ernest Borgnine as he's turns and looks at the camera and smiles as he's patting Tom on the back. And it's like, yep, yep, the devil gets gets it in the end, you know, or doesn't get it. He wins in the end. It's a great ending. It makes no sense, but it's cool. Ernest Borgnine just smiling and, you know, is cheesing it up. I guess at this point, good old Satan is 2-0. and What'll happen next in Race with the Devil? If I was a betting man at this <laughs> point, I'm, I'm leaning towards Satan on this one. You know, Race of the Devil, as we're going to talk about, there's some stupid things that happen in Race of the Devil. These people. Man, you're focusing on the wrong things. I love it. Don't get me wrong. Okay. I just, I think some of the choices that some of these people are making, maybe these, this is an educational. Maybe watching these three films helps educate you. What do you do when you're out in, in the middle of nowhere with the rednecks and, and things take a turn? Do you take the road on the left? Do you take the road on the right? You know, or do you take the road home? And I think the road home might be the best choice. But then again, our episode would have been about 10 minutes long. Take a break, come back and see if we're correct on our speculation. Yeah, I just want to add real quick, Severed Films, Blu-ray, less than $22. And you can rent it on Amazon Prime, so easily found. And there's a lot of other versions out there if you want to go. If $22 is too high for your budget, you can probably get a DVD version for a little less the print is probably going to be fairly comparable. Not a bad print out there, this movie, at least that I'm aware of. The Severn Films Blu-ray sounds like the way they go with all the extras. Now our break? Yes, now our break. All right, we'll be right back. Two men on a dream vacation. What the hell are they doing? I sure think they killed her. Back! Frank, they've seen us. And get trapped in an unbelievable nightmare. Turn off the light! Why? What's wrong? What are you guys up to? 20th Century Fox presents Race the Devil. We saw somebody murdered. What? Some sort of ritual across the river. A girl got stabbed. They're chasing us. Starring Peter Fonda and Warren Oates. There was nowhere they could hide. Alice, look what was stuck to the back window. It's some kind of message. Witchcraft. Witches! There was no one they could trust. Well, did anybody hear anything? Didn't anybody see anything? Go on with your trip. Have a good time. Leave this up to me. 
there was nothing they could do. They followed us all the way from Bandera. They're here right now watching us. But run. Shoot him, Frank! And race with the devil. There's somebody on top! Frank, it's got to leave! We gotta stay in here! Don't look! Peter Fonda, Warren Oates, Loretta Swint, Lara Parker. Race with the devil. When you race with the devil, You'd better be faster than hell. Two couples vacationing in their RV witness a satanic ritual and are subsequently terrorized during what becomes a literal road trip from hell. Their mantra changes from life is good to murder. No joke, no kidding, no bullshit, murder as they race with the devil. Richard, before we get into Race with the Devil, I understand you have prepared a little something in lieu of our normal what happened in the year, which, you know, we may have to eventually retire because we're going to be hitting at some point almost every year. This idea here is this kind of something fun. So I think yeah, maybe, I like these, maybe these fun little things that we do from time to time. I was thinking there's a lot of satanic or cult movies out there. So a website called Flavor Wire, never heard of them. They had a list called the Top 10 Sinister Films About Satan. It was not an official like 1 to 10. It was just really 10 films in general. In no particular order, I thought it'd be fun to take a look at some of these films. We have The Blood on Satan's Claw, 1971 film. And if you thought we weren't going to have a Doctor Who reference, mm -hmm. ah, you're wrong. Because Wendy Padbury, who played Zoe Harriet, opposite the second Dr. Patrick Troughton, is in this movie, The Blood on Satan's Clock. Have you seen that one? Yes, love it. Yeah, that's a fun movie. Yeah. That's a good one. The House of the Devil, 2009, from writer-director Ty West. Kind of a slow burn. I enjoyed that one. It does have kind of a cool payoff. I don't like, like it as much as a lot of other people just sing a lot of praises about it. I'm like, it's good. I appreciated my second viewing a lot more than the mm -hmm. first. Rosemary's Baby, 1968, with Mia Farrow and Ruth Gordon and Burgess Meredith and that cast of many other people I'm missing out. That's a fun classic. To the Devil, a Daughter, the last real Hammer film from 1976, Christopher Lee. We have All the Colors of the Dark, 1972, with George Hilton. I am not familiar with that movie at all. Are you? I know the name. It's talked about a lot when they're talking about Giallo. Yes. I don't know if, is yeah. it Mario Bava? Did he direct it or? I don't know. I didn't mark that down. I'm familiar with the title, I should say. Yeah, I, I haven't yeah. seen it. That's on so. my list to see, but I don't know much about it. A movie from 82 called Black Candles, which I have on a Grindhouse double feature with, I think, Evil Eye is the other movie, but I've never seen it. And, and now I'm kind of curious since it popped up on this list. Satan's Slave, 1976, with Michael Goff, I believe is how it's pronounced. Michael Goff, Michael Go. I think it's Goff. The First Power, 1990, with Lou Diamond Phillips. Familiar with the title, never seen it. 
And then we have a race with the devil, our movie that we're going to be talking about. And then another movie called witchcraft 70, which was released in 1969, which features our good friend, Anton LaVey. I had to see this one. I was kind of, I was curious about it because one of the, the director of the American version of this film is Lee Frost and Lee Frost was involved in our next movie race with the devil. Apparently this was an Italian production. The Americans got their hands on it and re-edited the movie apparently and took out some of the more grotesque scenes. I'm not familiar with who the uh, Italian narrator was, but they added in narration from three different people. One of whom is a, is a British actor. I didn't write down the name, so I apologize. But the other narrators being Will Gear, Grandpa Walton from the Waltons, and Jack Palance. This is available on Amazon Prime, and they promote it as being the American version. However, once I pressed play, it's the Italian version. So there is no Will Gear, Jack Palance, which I kind of disappointed about because from what I read, some of the dialogue that they were given to narrate is just absolutely outlandish. You do get some of that in the Italian version. However, it was all subtitles, so it kind of lost, I think, some of its, you know, what would have been fun hearing Will Gear or Jack Blance say some of the stuff. So it's made like one of those Mondo movies. It's a documentary. Supposedly, a lot of the scenes are faked or with actors. And there's definitely some scenes in the movie that you know for sure are obviously faked. There's like a scene of like someone who's having like erotic memories of her dead husband or something. There is one particular sequence with a girl who is going through this like ceremony. And it's like they're basically they're ushering her into womanhood in this weird cult kind of way. I mean, she's having her head shaved. Then they do all this weird ritual stuff. Now I'm sitting here watching this scene and I'm like, okay, if this is an actress, she just had her head shaved, which is pretty intense for, she probably didn't get paid a lot. That seemed questionable. Then they do this ritual stuff where they've got live animals and they are cutting the live animals and pouring the blood over her head. I suppose Hollywood magic might've been able to make this happen. That looked real to me and it was intense and pretty grotesque and I can imagine that maybe that was pulled out of the American version, but it's here, the Italian version. To the extent they have like a, I think it's a goat and the goat is squirming when they're cutting the head. They don't show them like cutting the head off, but they do show the head off then. And then like blood squirting out of the neck, pretty intense. So obviously there's some stuff in this movie that was faked. They do have Anton LaVey performing one of his ceremonies. And it seemed like it was really pretty much pulled out of, I guess, Satanus, the devil's mask came after, but he was kind of doing the same shtick in both movies. So not a lot of difference there. It was 90 minutes or so. And it was a dollar rental on Amazon. I'm glad I saw it. Corky pseudo documentary that involves clearly some fake stuff. But then you've got that one ritual. It was really almost too much to watch. If you are so inclined, check it out. But beware, it's the Italian version, not the American version. And I kind of wanted to see the American version. I guess I was kind of surprised. And I had to do subtitles and all that stuff to understand what was going on. 
That's the list. Top 10 sinister films about Satan. And as I said, the uh, person Lee Frost was involved in the American version of Witchcraft 70. And he was the writer and original director of our final movie, Race with the Devil. Race with the Devil released June 27th, 1975, made by Sabre Productions and 20th Century Fox. As you mentioned earlier, written by Lee Frost and Wes Bishop, directed by Jack Sterrett, and the executive producer, Paul Manslansky. I mention that because he does the commentary on the Blu-ray with Laura Parker. Before we get into it, I, I kind of do want to give the history of this production a little bit. You mentioned that Lee Frost was the original director on this movie. The executive producer, Paul Maslansky tells the story of the the origin of this movie. He got a call one day from 20th Century Fox, Alan Ladd Jr., and said, we've got a production down in San Antonio that's in trouble. We need you to go down there and take it over. He went down there and, and Lee Frost was directing. He had been three or four days was all he shot, but they fired him, replaced him with the director, Jack Sterrett, and reshot the footage that had been done, basically started over. Having Lara Parker on here was interesting because we heard that from Maslansky. And then she said the actors, they had no idea that all this was going on. I mean, the drama was like behind the scenes in Hollywood, whatever. They're just there doing their job, working on the set. And all of a sudden they were introduced. Hey, this is your new director. The stars, Peter Fonda, more notes. They have allegiance to Lee Frost. And at first they didn't even want to talk to, you know, the new, oh, wow. new people. But eventually they worked it out. This movie seems largely driven by Peter Fonda and wanting it to be very much action-packed and a lot of stunts. Just coming off Easy Rider, I mean, he was kind of a hot thing at this time. It's kind of driven more by him and his participation really than most anything else. That's how it came to be, you know, similar to the other movies, tight budget, short time to bring it in. This movie had a 1.3 million budget came in under budget, even though they did have some delays. That's what brought us this movie, which I think is fantastic. I agree. This is a first time viewing for me. I'm oh, it was. Sure. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. I had been aware of it probably since the 70s. I remember the, the trailer playing on, on TV. For some reason, I, I've never sat down to watch this movie. Whenever I hear it, I'm like, oh, yeah, I want to see that. Because I'm familiar with Peter Fonda, you know, obviously, you know, as you said, he's a writer. He did Future World, Spirit of the Dead or Spirits of the Dead, that weird mm. 60s anthology that also featured Jane Fonda. He was uh, in Escape from L.A. But Warren Oates is actually the actor that always makes me think of this movie because he plays Frank. He did lots of TV, lots of Westerns. He was in an episode of Thriller. So maybe that'll be something we'll talk about later, foreshadowing. We've got The Twilight Zone. He was in Lost in Space. I always remember him from Lost in Space because the first five episodes of Lost in Space are played very serious. Dr. Smith is evil. And then they did an episode called Welcome Stranger. And that's where, where War Notes plays, I think Jimmy Hapgood plays a space cowboy which makes no sense. And that's where everything is like, okay, so now we're going to, we're going to go down a different path with the show. And that's the episode where Dr. Smith is now 
no longer evil, but he's 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 got evil, but he's starting to be the bubble-headed booby, you know, characteristic that he that he would play. Uh, so I remember him from that. I also there was movies uh, "Bring Me the Head" of Alfredo Garcia and Tulane Blacktop propelled him to different heights. Warren Oates, I was like, I hadn't seen him in anything for so long. I didn't know. We lost him a long time ago. He died of a heart attack in 1982 at the age of 53. But I do love him in this movie for something about his acting style or something about Warren Oates I just kind of like. I was not familiar, honestly, that Loretta Swit and, and Laura Parker were in this movie. When I watched the trailer proper, I was like, again, I've seen the trailer and I've been familiar with the movie, but I wasn't familiar enough with it to know it's like oh my gosh there's hot lips hot lips Houlihan was in it then of course you've got sheriff taylor and we're not talking andy rg armstrong great character actor always plays a bad guy it's like if you see him he's not a good guy he's bad don't trust him so many movies that he's been in over the years from predator children of the corn he was prune face and dick tracy beast within the car devil dog the hound of hell you had a fun cast with this one. And and the premise is, in my mind, it's like deliverance meets Satan very much. It's like being in the wrong place at the wrong time and seeing something you shouldn't see and then making some bad choices that sent you down an even darker path. And we're going to, I'm sure we'll talk about that, but I, I love this movie too. And, and I will say of the three movies, I, this is my favorite. I love Devil's Reign because it's got Ernest Borgnine and William Shatner. But as a movie, this one was was pretty action packed. It had me guessing, not trusting anybody that they they met. This movie is probably less horror related as it's more of an an action film. It just happens to to involve a satanic cult because the satanic part certainly comes into play, but there's also other elements like the big chase scene that we get at the end of the movie, which wouldn't have to include anything satanic. It really, that, that chase scene is legitimately a car chase scene that was so iconic that it got reused a few years later in an episode of the fall guy. They pulled scenes from that and, and put it in. I kind of want to seek out that episode now to see how they used it in the movie. But of course they're in the big RV the 1975 Vogue 32-foot Via Grande, and it's in pretty bad shape by the end of the movie. It, 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 they put that poor thing through hell, and I guess that plays into the Fall Guy episode, I guess. Poor RV has seen better days. But yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this one. This is a movie has been something I wanted to see, and now that I've seen it, I'm, I'm glad that I have, and I want to own it. I, don't, I watched this on Amazon Prime, rented it as well, which I'm thankful for. And I was surprised that this movie doesn't have its own Blu-ray. It's in a double feature with Dirty Mary Crazy Larry from Shout Factory. Less than $15. Were there any cool extras on the Blu-ray? Not so much. There are a couple extras. I did not watch the extras on this, but to me, it's the best commentary if you want to learn about making a movie. They talk a lot about the uh, motorhome RV, for example. There were two of them. They tore up one of them and... The scenes were actually shot inside the motorhomes. They didn't build sets. So very tight quarters, getting cameramen and all the equipment in there. And, you know, that's interesting. They talked about even, you know, mounting the cameras on the side of the cars. Those are all real 
cars, nothing was done, you know, with a green screen or anything in the background. That was all. When you know that and you watch these old movies, that's Hollywood magic there. Not discounting the talent that it takes for someone to be sitting at a keyboard and creating all this stuff, right? And making it look so believable that you don't know what's real and what's not. But the fact is, is that this was real stuff and not just a, a computerized version of something makes me love these these old movies even more when you see that kind of stuff. And the fact that the actor is participating in the commentary, not just the creator, you you learn interesting little, to me more, maybe they're more interesting because they're more like on my level. Maybe I can relate more. You know, the fact that they had to have two sets of all of their clothing um, because they basically wear the same clothes through most of the movie. And after some of the scenes they do, you know, they get ruined. So they had to have, you know, everything came in pairs. So things like that, you learn a lot of information like that. So it's a great commentary. We also learn, and I don't think this is exclusive to the commentary because you were aware of this also. Do you want to tell the dog story? There is some animal violence in this movie. Another good reason, I guess, for, for these films, why, you know, Carla wouldn't watch them. I should say, Carla did watch the witchcraft movie with me. Yeah, there was several moments where she had to close her eyes. So it's like when they were doing some of the animal violence, because she loves documentaries. At the end of that, she said, this was not a documentary. <laughs> and I said, yeah, it really wasn't. You've got a couple of snakes, you know, that don't fare very well. But you have a scene in particular with the dog. And let me just interject that they do the cardinal sin of movies. I mean, kill people, kill children, whatever. But you kill a dog, you've gone as dark in my mind as you can get. For me, that that, I I would say two things. It's like, you know, if you you kill a child, you know, boy, that bothers me sometimes, depending on how it's all done. Yeah, kill a poor dog, dog or animal. Come on. Nobody was harmed, supposedly. Essentially, yeah, the dog that's owned by Roger and, and Kelly, they come back and the dog from going out to dinner, and they, the dog is hanging on the door. It's a real dog, folks. It's not fake. The dog was drugged and was completely unharmed during the process. And I'm like, you drug the dog and you hung the dog up, you know, by its feet. I'm sorry. And maybe the dog was knocked out. That's not what I qualify as being unharmed. Maybe physically it wasn't harmed, but that's like, you know what? We need somebody. So Jeff, I'm going to give you a knockout drug. (laughs) Don't mind us. We're going to hang you from your feet here above a fiery pit. Everything's cool. We're not going to hurt you. Oh, and by the way, we're not going to tell you that we're doing it. Just here, have a drink. You know, come on. Something you wouldn't see today. All of that would be CGI. And that's a good thing. Right. The thing about I, that is it doesn't even look like a real dog to me. I didn't know it, it was a real dog. It looks like a blob of fur and you know what it is, but you know I had no is, idea so. that was a real dog. I don't know. So why they just couldn't have just used exactly. some type of stuffed animal rather than actually drugging the poor dog and hanging him there. Now the snake scenes, you know, I, I don't know how the snakes were harmed or not harmed, but that was a harrowing scene. I mean, so you're in a confine of an RV, you open up a cabinet and there's like, and I, I didn't even realize at first that there was more than one. And until I saw, wait a minute, there's like, there's two. And we're not talking little garden snakes. We're talking rattlesnakes, which you're in a confined place and things are going crazy. And you're trying to kill this, this rattlesnake. Terrifying, absolutely terrifying. And this is just indicative. There, there are scenes of just harrowing moments in this movie 
that don't even, you know, not even when the cars are moving, but some of these, some of these sequences, it's just like, you're, my heart get, got pumping several times. So the premise of the movie is, you know, these two couples go on, on a trip and they're apparently headed to Aspen to ski, but they've got a big RV and they're going to have fun. What do you do when you've got an RV? You want to go out and enjoy nature. And so you take the little side road and, hey, let's cross this stream to get to the other side. And let's not worry about if this property is owned by anybody or not, but we're going to go ahead and set up camp here. And, you know, they've got their little motorbikes and they're out, you know, doing, doing manly things on the bikes. And of course it's nighttime. And so what do you do? You drink, you you drink to excess and it's all, everyone's having a good time. And then of course, what do they see? Well, they see across this little, like, I don't know, not necessarily ravine, but kind of across this little area on this other side, they see a big tree go up in flames, basically, or a big bonfire start. Roger and Frank, with their binoculars, go to investigate. What do they see? They, they see a bunch of people in robes gathered around this fire, and they're chanting. I'll give them some slack. They were drinking. But for me, that's my sign. That's, that tells me I should probably turn and go the other direction. But they get pulled into the moment because, of course, what do they see? They see naked women. Continuing yeah. with the theme that if you're in a satanic cult, women have to be naked because that's just what Satan wants. Of course, then things go down a darker path when they witness her apparently get sacrificed because you have the cult leader wearing makeup work that's not quite to the effect of Ernest Borgnine, but he's wearing some type of ram-like, some type of mask or something he's wearing. Roger is like, we got to go. We got to get out of here. And then this is where Hot Lips comes out and starts screaming, boys, you've got to come in. <laughs> and they're like, shut up. Well, the Satan worshipers here, Hot Lips, her name's Alice, but I'm going to call her Hot Lips, screaming that they need to come in. And of course, they realize they got to get out of there. So what do they do? They go run back and they don't care that they've got the awning. They just drive off, leave their, their table and stuff behind. And of course, they got to cross the ravine to get to the other side. Now, for me, I've got this RV. I wouldn't be crossing a ravine to begin with, because what if it would have rained that night and the water would have risen? They would have been stuck on this other side. This is where my blood's pumping, right? Because you've got crazy redneck Satan worshipers are chasing them. And of course, they get stuck. They've got a little bit of a headway. They're trying to get unstuck. You see the scenes of the Satan worshipers chasing them. I'm like, come on, come on, let's get going. They narrowly get to the other side, but then they got to ride up the hill. And so the RV is going slow. It's chugging along and Roger's screaming to Frank, don't let up on the gas. Well, of course, the three rednecks then jump the RV and you get a bit of action. And this is where Peter Fonda gets to be the action star. They manage to fight off the three, you know, satanic rednecks. This is where Richard, who has seen enough movies, knows it's time to leave the area. I've witnessed something. I've witnessed something clearly satanic. I've witnessed a murder. They know the RV. I'm not going to go to the nearby town. I'm probably going to go home at that point. I think vacation plans have taken a very dark turn. I think it's time to, to go home. But what do they do? They go to the nearby town and let's talk to the sheriff. 
Sheriff Taylor, not talking to Andy. Let's go ahead and give him our names and our addresses. Now, right from the get-go, I don't get good vibes from Sheriff Taylor. I was like, yeah, something's up with this guy. We need you to come back to the scene of the crime so you can show us exactly where all of you know all this happened. And of course, something that's picked up by Roger, of course, and is talked about later is that Sheriff Taylor takes them to the crime scene. They don't tell him the road to turn. And of course, the blood that's found is blamed to be that it's an animal or you know dog blood because, hey, we've got a dog that's like pinned to the tree. Go ahead, go back on your vacation and, and we'll, we'll call you with all the details. And they're going to go to the gas station at the end of town and basically try to get the window fixed. While they're there, of course, they're being trailed by a truck, which you see, and that's when they start talking about, well, something's not right here. I should say that they got a note, they got a warning on the back window that basically said, you know, don't talk to anyone, and for whatever evil you do, we'll come back to you tenfold, and here's some ancient symbols that we'll throw here just to terrify you. They find out that it's a, it's a rune, and it's, you know, basically witchcraft. You have witchcraft warning. I think there was still a chance they could have just gone about their business. But when they're sitting there and they're talking about, we're going to go to San Antonio, or, or yeah, not uh, Amarillo. We're going to go to Amarillo. We're going to talk to the you know highway patrol. We're going to talk to police. I've got my own little blood sample. Well, yeah, the gas station attendant is, is listening, who is actually, I believe, Jack Starrett, the director, played the gas station attendant. He hears, and of course, at that point, yep, their fate is sealed at that point, unfortunately. And that's where they've already gone down a dark path, and now they're they're accelerating down an even darker path where things are just not going to end well for them. But there was opportunities that they could have just, I don't know, what would you have done? If you if first off, I wouldn't go camping out in the middle of nowhere on property I didn't know because I know that doesn't end well nine times out of ten. But if you would have witnessed something like that and you know you're dealing with with bad stuff, would you go to the police or would you just? I don't know what I would do. You know, they could be so shook up. They they don't know what they're doing. I guess. I I guess. I I mean, the right thing to do, right, is to go to the police. But then the other part of me is like. Uh, this is something bad, you know, and it's like, I'm in unknown territory and I, I've just, this is not good stuff. And I think I've seen enough movies. I would probably not, I guess I wouldn't do the right thing, but I, depending <laughs> on how you look at it, it would be the right thing. I would just kind of like, you know what, I'm going to, there's nothing I can do at that point. And knowing that anything I witnessed is going to be gone by the time anybody gets there. I guess maybe the coward in me would say, I'm going to pack my bags and go home. Well, it's a nonstop thrill ride from there. And it's not really horror, mostly action, but it's, it's a thriller is probably the best because it is truly suspenseful. And there's slower moments thrown in where you're not sure who's good and who's bad. And you may as well just assume everyone's bad. Like when they go to the swimming pool and everyone's staring at them, uh, you know, that's, very creepy, unsettling, even if it may not be like outright horror. Everything they're, that they're doing, they're being watched. Their whole goal at this point is to try to get to Amarillo. And they're off the beaten track, right? So they're basically like on two-lane highways, and they're trying to get back to the interstate, which seems like it takes them forever to get back to the interstate. 
And spoiler alert, they never do. A little tidbit on that snake scene. Loretta Swit was terrified of snakes and she was not even on the set when they filmed that scene. So if you watch, you can tell the, the, the scenes of her are inserted of her screaming and, and that she's not actually in there. And then there's one oh. scene where it's really obvious because it kind of shows everyone in there. And where is Loretta Swit? And then there's like uh, Peter Fonda, who's like right there. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to grab that snake. <laughs> yeah, I cringed when I saw that. I was like, I, I'm more afraid of, of wasps and bees, obviously. You know, snakes don't necessarily terrify me, but a rattlesnake would. <laughs> I mean, that's that would terrify me. And I, I don't you could sit there and say, well, we have a wrangler over here and everything will be fine. Yeah, no. No, I don't I don't care how, how docile and friendly he is. You also mentioned the rune that they find. I got a uh, meta kind of joke out of that because Lara Parker, Kelly, knows what a rune is and explains mm-hmm. it. I'm like, of course she does. She's Angelique <laughs> from Dark Shadows. <laughs> I was looking, of course, you know, at, at some of the stuff that the other uh, cast did. I was like, I did. I knew that Lara, Lara Parker was in Dark Shadows, but I, I and I knew that she was in an episode of Kolchak. I, I never picked this up and this is kind of cool. She was in the Six Million Dollar Man. She was actually in two episodes, but one specifically was The Secret of Bigfoot. She plays the character of Marlene Becky, the two people at the beginning of the episode that get first attacked by Bigfoot and it goes missing. And then when they find her, she like doesn't have memory or anything like that. I also didn't know that she was Laura Banner in the pilot movie of The Incredible Hulk. Mm. Well, you know, his wife dies in a car accident. So apparently she had this a little uncredited cameo, I think, in that. She was also in Galactica 1980 <laughs> in uh, The Night the Cylons Landed. The weird episode where the Cylons come down to Earth and it's Halloween night. You got Wolfman Jack and stuff. That's a horrible TV series, by the way. You know, we should absolutely give a shout out to the fact that she is in the recent uh, Dr. Mabuse films from uh, Ansel Farage. And here's she, uh, something she reveals on the commentary. She was actually Jane Fonda's roommate at Vassar. And I saw that. Yeah, yeah. Went home with Jane one weekend. And Peter was three years younger than her. So they were at college. He was still in high school. She played Monopoly with Peter and Jane Fonda. Well, Peter didn't <laughs> remember her. And this, I believe, if I'm not wrong, was... Laura Parker's first big theatrical movie. And she's very nervous, very shy. Peter didn't recognize her and she didn't want to say, she didn't tell him until the end of the production who she was. I guess there's so many characters on Dark Shadows, it would be very hard for me to keep up with all of their credits and what all of them have done. Sure, you know, Jonathan Frid and David Selby. And yeah, Laura Parker, Angelique was a big part. I just learned numerous things from you that I didn't know. And I sure had never heard she was Jane Fonda's roommate. Peter Fonda, I think part of his reputation is a partier. He lost a few brain cells from that time to 1975. And and Warren Oates as well. And Lara talked about uh, how their actor friends, she didn't say who they were, but they had a big circle of actor friends would come down and they'd party at night. And if you look, Warren Oates in some indoor scenes is wearing sunglasses. Uh-huh. That's because he's been like up partying all night and I'm sure his <laughs> eyes are bloodshot. So and they uh, did a lot of ad-libbing, those two. They, they were 
friends. They had worked together before, and a lot of the the banter was just on the spot. And well, that's, that's what I was going to say. I, I threw Lara good... Parker off because she's learning her lines and learning her cues, and then they're changing them on the spot. There was a good chemistry between Fonda and Oates. That absolutely makes sense. That that was part of what I, I enjoyed about the movie is that you really did the very beginning is like Frank kind of comes off as, is he really that, I don't know, anal of a boss or whatever, you know, as he's had not vacation or is it just kind of his persona? Because no one seemed to take it the wrong way, but he was kind of like rough and brusque and stuff. And then you get the gist of, yeah, he's a workaholic. And now he's finally on vacation and letting his hair down and, you get the gist of the friendship that the four of them have had. And you don't get the feeling that there's any kids involved on either side. At first, I kind of, you know, decide the fact that they made some bad choices. I was like, man, their vacation has been ruined and, you know, going through hell. And But then even don't, you're not out of the woods yet. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be, you know, letting my guard down. They know where, where you live. And if they followed you this far, they're not going to give up. Oh no, they're on the interstate. I guess we can't chase them anymore. There's some cool that, that like when they come across the the car accident, right? And I, I didn't think anything of it at first. I thought somebody was going to come from behind. But then when Warren Oates, you know, says, "Yeah, when would you see a, a school bus with kids on a Sunday?" And then he goes barreling through. Then all of a sudden, it's like the townspeople from Brotherhood of Satan are just like latching on and stuff. I was like, "Oh my gosh!" And then. Towards the end of the movie, after the crazy chase scene, and you think they got away, they come across another construction scene. And I'm thinking, oh, this isn't good. Some of me thinks that that was maybe legit, that maybe that really was construction happening. But then the other part of me thinks that was just part of the cult's overall plan was to get them off the road. I don't know. What do you think? Do you think that was part of their plan or? Uh, I don't know. That's like I say, you never know. You assume everyone is bad. Something you said reminded me, you know, the scene with the truck pulling the house down the road and they have to, of course, you know, you're being chased. And what do you face coming yeah. ahead? A wide load. Yeah, That was spontaneous. They were, they were out filming and here came this thing and they got it, incorporated it. Oh, cool. To be in the movie. Yeah, that's cool. What did you think of the ending? The very ending? I honestly thought they were going to get away. I did think that they were, there would be something that they would kind of get away. Their headlights have been knocked out, so they can't drive in the dark. I get that. But they pull off to the side. They totally let their guard down. Necessity, I guess they had to do that, right? But they're like, ah, we're in the clear. Let's have a drink. You know, let's, let's relax. And I'm like, I wouldn't be celebrating it. I'd be terrified, you know, like you're because we've been chased that far. Clearly, you're not out of danger yet. All of a sudden, basically everybody that you've seen in the movie was part of this big plot. Circles the the RV with fire, and there's chanting, and through slow mo, the sheer look of terror on on everybody in the RV realizes. We're dead. We're not getting out of here alive. Keeping with the theme of these three movies, there's no happy endings. Originally, there was a happy ending. It ended right before that scene. And I just, I, I don't know why. Well, they were concerned. They didn't like the ending. And I think it's great we talked about the endings. And, you know, at that time, you almost had to have a bleak ending. At the last minute, you know, they said they cobbled it together. And that was the ending. Laura Parker had an alternative idea. And 
She thought it was so much better. I don't really think so. I kind of like the ending, but her idea was that they pull over, they all go to sleep. And when they wake up, Kelly is gone. She's missing. To me, that's not such a great ending. Like either she was abducted or she was even like part of it, maybe because she was, her character was different. She was the intuitive one. She, she went against the, the crowd. She would have preferred to just leave, but she was outnumbered, I guess. And, they talked about her reactions to things that were sometimes different from everyone else because she sensed that something was going on. I wouldn't have got thought that she would have been involved with it, but I mean, maybe taken. Yeah. Abducted, I would think, but yeah, that would have been a horrible ending because then it's like really leaves everything up in the air at that point. I would have been okay if they would have had, I guess, a happy ending. I liked the ending. There's a scene where they are oh, fine and they're hugging and not everything. And then a new scene starts, you know, right then it's not going to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I would have been OK with the happy ending, I guess. You know, maybe like if they would have made it to Amarillo. Here's an idea for, for an ending. They make it to Amarillo and they give them the information. And maybe, you know, one of them says, you know, well, we made it. We're home free. And then maybe one of them mentions yeah, but didn't we give them our address back there? Oh, I like that. And then the look on their face and then just end that way. I think that would have been kind of cool. Yeah. You know, we know they're not dead, but is it really over? And that would have been the perfect segue for Race with the Devil, you know, lap two or, you know, whatever. <laughs> the cannonball run with the devil. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been that would have been funny. <laughs> I did love this movie. It was just action packed. When there was moments with the music, I recognized this style of music, and so I had to see who who did the music. Leonard Rosamond. Oh yeah, who did Voyage or Fantastic Voyage, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, Battle for the Planet of the Apes, Star Trek Four. He had a style, especially with the apes music. There was a few moments where I'm like, I'm getting an apes vibe here. And I'm wondering, you know, and sure enough, I'm glad that I, I saw this. Absolutely. Definitely some horrific moments in, in the movie, to be sure. It's a thriller more than a horror movie. Very, very good one. It's yeah, kind of I, like a, a lot of the TV movies of the 70s were similar to this. You know, uh, they witness something, no one believes them and they're, you know, fighting for their lives, but on a, not a, great big budget but you could never have had those stunts and things on a tv movie. no i think as we kind of you know talked about i mean this is my favorite of the three and then i would go with devil's reign and then brotherhood of satan was this one that was problematic for me will i re-watch these movies again yes i will give brotherhood of satan another try somewhere a few years down the road yep i'll absolutely see devil's reign again because it's just cheesy fun this one, absolutely. Even though I know the ending and all this stuff in between, it's a fun film and I will definitely revisit it again. All three of these movies are easily rentable or purchasable. Easy to play along at home. And I recommend you do rent or purchase all of them. Richard, perhaps only two out of three. But two out of three, they say, ain't bad. Ain't bad. And, <laughs> and you know what? It sounds like if I was to give Brotherhood of Satan another try and I enjoyed it, Sounds like the Blu-ray would be would be worth the purchase. I know Arrow Video does good stuff. Okay, let's take one more break then and then come back and do new business and wrap it up. New from Supermates Recordings. Chilling sounds from the house of Franklin Stein. 
blood-curdling sounds of horror in one four-episode set. Featuring your favorite stars from classic spooky films. Lon Chaney Jr. and Bella Lugosi. The father was Frankenstein, but your mother was the lightning. Peter Cushing and Stephanie Beecham. The night has over. And Christopher Lee. I have returned to destroy you. Bud Abbott and Lou Costello. I'm gonna haunt him. That's what I'm gonna do. Mm-hmm. Heather Langenkamp and Johnny Depp. Do you believe in the boogeyman? No. And Robert England. I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. Here's more. The hit House of Frankenstein theme by Terry O'Malley. Order now and you'll receive bonus comic stories featuring your favorite superheroes versus fiendish monsters. Offer ends October 31st, and it's not available in any store. Here's how to order. To order the chilling sounds from the House of Frankenstein, save all credit card and COD charges by visiting fireandwaterpodcast.com or search for Fire and Water Podcast Network or Supermates. Podcatchers are standing by. We are back with new business. First off, we have home video releases, quite a few from mid-September to mid-October. You may have to rein me in. A lot of these could uh, spur some tangents. Speaking with the very first one, September 14th from Shout Factory is Alone in the Dark, 1982. I do have to preface this because it's going to come up several times during this that I recently watched, as I believe you did too, the two-part documentary on Shudder about 80s horror movies, which I'm blanking on the name now. Do you have the name? In Search of Darkness. Yeah, fantastic. They're each like four and a half hours long. I watched watched both of them at the same time. I would watch, they go year by year. So on the first part, I watched like 1982. And then I jumped to the second part and watched 1982. So I got them all together. And it's it's an easy documentary to like stop after a movie if you want to take a break. So I'm about halfway through part two, actually. So So I finished it. Anyway, one of the movies they talked about was this Alone in the Dark from 1982. I've never seen it, but it sounds crazy. Martin Landau and somebody else. It's like a horror comedy, but they play these guys that you think are like the straight heroes of, and then they turn out to be like escaped maniacs or something. And I can't see Martin Landau doing that. That may be of interest. I've been aware of that movie, but there must be another movie with a similar title because I did not have any idea that this is what it was. On the 21st, we have a couple, and I I might've mentioned these last time, so I'll breeze by them from Kino Lorber. We have Skullduggery from 1970, more of an adventure, but there's primates and things a little bit of a fantasy element and then a huge fantasy element in Puffin Stuff from 1970. I got to get that. I mean, that was growing up HR Puffin Stuff and that movie and Witchy Poo and all that. Witchy Poo, yes. September 28th, I'm sure this has come out before in many versions and heck, it's even public domain, but Kino Lorber's putting out a Blu-ray of The Hunchback of Notre Dame from 1923 with Lon Chaney. And I haven't looked to see if it has any like new features or anything. I don't own a copy. I don't know how much it's going to cost, but this would probably be a good one to get. For some reason, I thought there was a kind of a definitive version of this out already, but Maybe not, apparently, I don't know what difference this will have. You know, the Hunchback of Notre Dame and Nosferatu and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, those are three that I don't have a good copy of any of those in my collection because I've had the opportunity to see all three of those multiple times 
here in the Kansas City area with live music accompaniment. And they always play the amazing current print that exists for all three of those films. I've seen them quite frequently. And so I just like, I haven't been compelled to buy them, but I need to. They're public domain. You can see them anywhere. You see them all the time. And then you realize, wow, I don't own that. The good prints are not as easy to find because the public domain prints of these movies are not the way to see those three movies. It's one of those things where one of these years, I just need to get all three of those films and and get them in my collection because sooner or later, I might not get a chance to see them on the big screen. Like, I don't know, a pandemic that hasn't allowed me to go see them. October 5th, we have technically a slew of movies coming out, quite a few. Uh, First of all, from Shout Factory is Elvira's Haunted Hills. Our friend Sam Irvin directed it. It's a very good spoof of the Edgar Allan Poe movies. Well, it's a cult favorite, I think, in a lot of ways. And and he was involved in the production. Oh, didn't he do Color Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I forgot about that. It's, I think, an anniversary. Yeah. yeah, 2001. It's been 20 years. Elvira, Cassandra Peterson, actually did the color commentary. Also on the fifth shot factor, we talked last time about the Halloween series, how it's coming off that beautiful box art. Now this, I am legitimately thrilled about. As you know, on the blog, I do Friday TV Terror Guide, and I'm doing 70s TV movies. Kino Lorber is doing great with releasing some of these, and some of them I've done. Some of them are on my list. Some of them I have heretofore been unable to find. So I am excited that October 5th, Scream Pretty Peggy from 1973 is coming out. Betty Davis in that. It's one I recently had to skip because I could not find it anywhere. So I'm thrilled that that's coming out. Also, The Screaming Woman from 1972 with Olivia de Havilland. It was one that I liked quite a bit. And then The Victim, 1972, Elizabeth Montgomery, I didn't like quite as much. Physical media is still alive and well for the collectors. That's where I'm thinking we've kind of entered this phase where let's get some of the stuff we've never seen get a formal release before, make the extra effort, do a little bit of restoration to it, get the rights cleared and and do these releases. I I think we could see some cool stuff. Hopefully with the TV movies, maybe this will, if sales are good enough, they'll continue to dive in in some of those lesser known movies. There's a movie I'd love to see. I don't even think it's been given a DVD release and and it's not that that great of a movie, but it's the people with William Shatner and, and Kim Darby that movie's never been given a, an official release, and I'd, I'd love to see that get at least, you know, something. Maybe. Movies that we continually put out. I don't think, Richard, this week there's been a release yet of, of the Universal Monsters. So let's, on October 5th, we're going to have the Icons of Horror Collection. Granted, they're in 4K. I guess that's the, the big new thing, in the, but they're going to be doing another set of the Universal Classic Monsters. I shouldn't poo-poo that. What I've got is what I'm going to always have. I'm happy with what I've got on, on the Universal. I choose to spend my money on something that hasn't been released. And then sort of in that middle ground of old and new on October 5th, Warner Animation is releasing Night of the Animated Dead. It's an animated version of Night of the Living Dead. And I have to admit, I'm intrigued by that. Yeah, um, that's interesting. I think I will uh, at least watch it. It'll probably be on, I don't know if it'll be on HBO Max or not. October 12th, Deadly Friend from 1986 from Shout, Wes Craven film. I didn't like it when I saw it. I don't know if I would give it a rewatch or not. Not at all what it appears to be. Have you seen that? 
No. Now, I do want to ask you about this movie, October 12th from Kino Lober, Hound of the Baskervilles. Ooh, what, what one of the great versions of that is. This is the one with Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. Never heard uh, of it. Do you know anything about I, it? I've heard of it. I mean, it's a parody, obviously. It's a comedy. There's certain things that I can enjoy a parody of, and then there's certain things... I don't know. Don't mess with my Sherlock Holmes. You know, it's kind of, I'm just, I'm a, I'm a Holmesian snob, I suppose. Finally, this might be going a little bit further into our next episode, but October 19th from Criterion, The Incredible Shrinking Man from 1957. So I think that's pretty cool that it's getting the Criterion treatment and should be. Yes. And I can share this little tidbit. We're going to talk about what we're doing for the 31 days of Halloween in October. If we want to, I'm planning on that. Uh, you know, I am too. I don't know if we want to talk about what we're doing here in a few moments. I mean, well, I'm totally... that's usually in our what's up with Richard section. But... Yes. So I will say a little tidbit though, that it's not going to be part of that, but probably post Halloween I will be posting an article on The Incredible Shrinking Man. It was something that I had originally written for a book that isn't quite happening as it was originally planned. So I am going to take that article and post it for everyone to read on probably both websites. Usually I do the horror-related stuff. Well, yeah, I do. I guess I do them on both, but I'll definitely do it on Monster Movie Kid. But anyway, to kind of tie into the Criterion release... I had a fun time writing the article. Not one of my all-time favorite movies. Got some problems with the the lead trying to feel sympathetic for him because the way some of the things he does at the beginning of the film, but it certainly is a memorable and iconic film. Just a couple birthdays and anniversaries in the months of September and October. September 24th, 1922, Bert I. Gordon. We met him at Monster Bash and also featured his movie in... Episode 7, Giant Insect Monster Bash. Another Monster Bash, Martin Beswick we met. Episode yes. 32, Dracula and Dr. Jekyll Meet the Gorgon. September 26, 1941. And then, speaking of Shrinking Man, Jack Arnold was born October 14th, 1916. We just talked about him in episode 58, Back to the Drive-In, Part 1. This is a good time to plug plug this in. Of course, Jack Arnold is well known for Creature from the Black Lagoon. And I don't know if you saw yesterday or not, but Riku Browning is not in good yes. health. He is really the last of the Universal Monsters. I don't know the specifics, but Ron Adams at uh, Creepy Classics has put out a message from, was it his daughter? Yeah. The words come out that they're asking for cards and letters, not just emails, but actual cards and letters. Riku Browning, is an, uh, he's up there in years. He's been with us a very long time, and he's had some health problems. I know even at the last bash, what, in 2019, I think, or maybe even before that, I think there was some questions as far as, like, how he'd be even able to, you know, kind of get up and move around and, and talk very much. But he was always there, both the bashes you and I have been to, giving a ton of autographs. But it's been two years ago, and uh, unfortunately, it seems like his health has kind of taken a turn. Should we give that address here? If you've got it pulled up. Right in front of me. So, Rick Browning, 5221 Southwest 196 Lane, Southwest Ranches, Florida, 
33332. I would need to go get something to send, but I'd like to do that. I'd like to do that too. I think back to, it's been a couple of years since we've lost a a true horror monster icon, I feel. Unfortunately, we've lost so many before, and he's the last of the monsters uh, from that era, last of the, of the classic monsters. You know, thankfully, I've had an opportunity to meet him, as did you. We wish him well and uh, send all sorts of positive energy and thought that everything is, uh, is good and, and peaceful on his end. Just two anniversaries. I already mentioned episode seven, Giant Insect Monster Bash for Bird Eye Gordon. We also talked about Amazing Colossal Man in that episode, and it was released October 4th, 1957. Donovan's Brain, week earlier, September 30th, 1953. We talked about that in episode 12, If We Only Had a Brain. That was a long time ago, If We Only Had a Brain. I know. I just have to pause every time I think of that. Wow. Now, what's up with Richard? What's going on with me? Mostly non-horror related stuff. Uh, I will totally own up to the fact, that I, I, as I've talked in previous episodes, I had planned to do a couple of other extra at the drive-in movie reviews. I was going to do uh, Blood of Dracula's Castle and the House That Drip Blood. You know what? Real life kind of intervened. Work kind of got busy and I just decided... Something had to go, and those were the two things that, that I just didn't have the time to. I watched House of the Drip Blood, but I used to have time to, to put together those reviews. So I apologize wholeheartedly for real life intervening, but I decided not to do those. However, I've been continuing with the summer with Harold Lloyd. That was a commitment. As we record this, you know, by the time this goes live, I'm assuming this will go live the week of the 20th. We will be in the final couple of days of, of posts. We'll be ready for, I think, the final movie of Harold Lloyd. So we'll be wrapping things up the week of the 20th. It's been a lot of fun. We're watching the sound films from the 1930s, and, and it's uh, been an incredibly fun journey. If you love classic comedy, take a look at the reviews, and, and you'll get some great suggestions. And the good thing is a lot of them, well, almost all of the movies that uh, we covered are actually available right now on YouTube for free. It doesn't deter from your enjoyment of the movie, but it does kind of stand out. That's really, I've just been doing a lot of Harold Lloyd stuff, beginning to wind that down and gear up for the 31 days of Halloween. So I guess I can make the announcement here that- uh, I don't even know this, so I am- You don't, we haven't talked about this actually. So. You know what? Last year, when I I did the 31 Days of Halloween, I did old time radio shows, and it was actually kind of fun to just do something, participate for 31 days, but have the freedom to watch whatever movie I wanted during the month, and not necessarily be so confined. I've done previous years Vincent Price, Boris Karloff, and stuff, and well, that's a lot of fun. It is a commitment, and I kind of like the freedom that I had last year to just. Yeah, pick and choose what I want. Some new stuff, some old classics, but still do the 31 days. And so I was trying to think, what am I going to do this year? Well, we got the, the message from the Countdown to Halloween website that they were doing it. I've got the little, the little badges are already available. So I got those ready to go, ready to throw those up on the site. And I said, well, I think what I'm going to do, looking at the calendar, is just highlight my personal favorite movies 
from each decade, starting with the 1920s, working my way through the 1960s. The 20s will be short because there's not as many movies. That'll just cover the first three days. And then on every Monday, we'll start a new decade. October 4th will be the 30s. The 11th will be the 40s. The 18th will be the 50s. And then the 25th will be the 60s, which will take us all the way through to Halloween. And it's going to be a mixture. Carla and I are going to go through because she loves to participate in this. Some of these movies that she's seen, some of these she hasn't seen yet. And so we'll have to kind of compile the list of what some of the favorites. And what I'm going to do is just throw up a, you know, like, you know, here's my, you know, a favorite movie from the 1930s. Not really do like a specific number one, two, three, just probably do it chronologically and throw up maybe my first experience with the movie, maybe a trivia fact or two, and then throw up a trailer or a link to the movie on YouTube, something kind of short and sweet, but just to kind of probably nothing earth shattering, but just kind of a fun, Hey, here's one of my favorite movies from the thirties and, you know, fun for people to kind of play along because they might be surprised what movies may stand out. And again, I'm, I'm limited to a week, seven days, not even a complete top 10, something, for example, I like the movie you'll find out from 1940. One of my favorites from the forties, Probably not going to be a lot of other people's choices, but I love the quirkiness of that movie. I love the Kay Kaiser scenes in that. It's going to be a lot of fun picking and choosing. And some of these will be comedies. Yep, Ghost of Mr. Chicken is going to be on that 1960s list for sure. In the midst of that, the way I was looking at the way the month plans, the it all maps out perfectly because what we're going to be covering for October is going to, and when I post, I typically try to do several days after you do post the the episode, will time out pretty much perfectly with the decade of the 1960s. That's what I'm doing for my 31 days to Halloween, my personal favorite horror movies through the decades. Very nice. I look forward to that. So what are you, what's been going on with you? Well, I will go ahead and tell you what I am going to be doing. And this is a kind of a mishmash of a couple things I've done in the past, but I am going to invite everybody to help Jeff clear off his DVR. I am going back and I'm just taking them in order. What's on my DVR, whether I'm in the mood to watch it or not, I'm going to watch it and post every day in the month of October. Very cool. What's sad is it won't really clear my DVR off unless I do two or three movies a day, but I'm going to get it down so that I can build it back up again, you know, through the the coming year. That's what I love about Sling TV. They upped their DVR. Now I've got 200 hours on the DVR. Nice. I've got about 80 hours of it filled right now with some stuff. Very cool. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a variety of things, uh, all different eras. I bet you got some Svengoolie on there. I do. <laughs> there's like, yeah. I think there's 11 Svengoolies. And and these coincide, I say it's a, a mishmash of things. This means these will all be also first time watches. I don't generally record a movie I've already seen to watch again. That's going to be fun. That'll take up October, just the normal stuff on the regular blog. I do want to mention, because you always are so kind to let me mention DC Comics guy. We're talking about Eclipso now. Uh, we finished up Man Bat, but I had a revelation, Richard. If I go at this pace of one comic each week, all of the characters and stories I want to write about 
I, I'm not going to live long enough. I mean, let's face <laughs> the, the card hold, cold hard facts. So I think I'm toying with the idea of, of grouping them more and doing like runs or, or series, maybe longer articles with instead of summarizing each story, I maybe summarize their arc. That's what's going on with me. Did Very we cool. mention what we're doing next month? I think this would, would be a good time to take a look and see what we're going to do. As sure as my name is Richard the Monster Movie Kid, October is sure to be a thriller. <laughs> no, 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 not Vincent Price. We're talking Boris Karloff and the classic anthology series Thriller. It ran for 67 episodes, 1960 to 1962. Thriller is a great series. It gets talked about, but I've never really heard anyone really talk about it proper other than maybe tidbits here and there. Boris Karloff, while being the host of all the episodes, also appeared in quite a few of the episodes. Plus, a ton of cool guest stars appeared. This is a fun anthology series and, and one that I've not seen the incomplete run, but I've seen random episodes from. I have seen all the Boris Karloff ones. There was a great box set of this that came out. Ever since I got it, I've really been itching to dive into it. This is the time. And I have a feeling that it's something that we'll be watching all the way through the Halloween season. So I don't know. We'll make it through all 67 episodes, but you never know. Well, we uh, certainly won't in, in the podcast. Uh, no, no. We're taking a fun, different approach with that. We are each going to pick two episodes We'll call them our favorites, but it's kind of hard to say because we neither one of us will have seen all 67 episodes. But we're going to pick two episodes that really stand out to us, whether we've seen it before or whether we are interested in maybe the subject matter or the star of the, uh, the episode. But we're going to do two each to talk about it. So rather than do three movies, we're doing four episodes of Thriller for Halloween I'm looking forward to this one. I think this is going to be fun. It's going to stir up the format a little bit. Come on. It's Halloween. It's Boris Karloff. What more can you ask for? It's going to be absolutely a perfect time of year to, to dive into uh, to classic. And we'll also talk a little bit more next month about what kind of led Karloff to do this anthology series, because it's not the only series he did. We're going to talk about the comic series and, and what was going on at this point in time in Boris Karloff's life. So that's next month's theme. And it's going to be a little different, too. We are not both going to watch the two episodes that we each do. We are going yeah. to sort of pick and choose. We will hopefully won't overlap. We'll have to tell each other what we're we'll doing. Have to tell we'll just, maybe you will have seen that episode and we can talk about it. But if not, we're just sort of presenting to each other and to you two, I'm sure, outstanding episodes of Thriller. I'm sure that some of our listeners have watched Thriller. Oh, um, what could they so recommend? Yeah, well, yeah, so let's do kind of twofold. If someone out there has a recommendation, please let us know. Maybe we'll do it. If not, maybe we'll talk about it. Also, let us know, not necessarily a recommendation, but let us know what your favorites are or maybe episodes to avoid. So if you've seen Thriller, let us know. We want to hear from you. Any number of ways you can reach out to us. I think that's about it then, Richard. Let's sign off. Uh, the song we're going to go out on is called Race with the Devil. It is a version by the Stray Cats from the 1986 oh, wow. album Rock Therapy, available on Apple Music. We'll do a Stray Cat strut out of here. 
there's a lot going on in the world, folks, and a lot of negativity. And, and it's best to focus on what we can do in our world and focus on, on the good. There's only so much we can control, but we control ourselves. We control the world around us and we can make the world a better place, even if it's our little corner of it. Stay safe, take care and uh, be happy. I'm a